Bondzilla presents King Kong. Each week we dive into the world of King Kong. This week our Kong series concludes with a return to the MonsterVerse. We finally discuss 2017's Kong Skull Island. Everybody, welcome once again to Bondzilla presents. I am Nick. I am Will. And I we was are deciding if I was going to make a Groot joke, but yeah, no, it didn't. No, I wasn't feeling it. So I think it's it. funny. I was thinking about you, about Guardians this weekend, about you, um, because oh, because of like all of like the like Suicide Squad and well, no, what yes, and... but what no, but the whole like there's a whole thing, uh, you know. You're not a big sports guy, but oh, oh, the the Cleveland the, Cleveland the, Guardians, yeah, yes, yeah, I I, I know about that because of uh, James Gunn's Twitter, right? So yeah, I did, yeah. So I, I was thinking that. like it's like they at least when they when they actually change their name, they do got to do like an actual Guardians of the Galaxy night, like one of those like Star Wars nights that Marvel nights that people mm-hmm. that the ba- baseball teams have. They got to do like a, a special Guardians night with maybe like a a, a rocket bobblehead that has like yeah. the, the him in the i think that would be sick the anyways cleveland Groot, the, the cleveland groots i like yes. that well yeah. people people and again people there are great artists out there and there are some people who design some really fun like guardians cleveland mashups that i really liked i oh, think yeah. there was some really cool stuff um I'm, I, I, like wait for it to be on james gunn's uh insta stories yeah it's, it'll come soon i can well, i guess i guess it. yeah i mean it's one of those things where suicide squad is real close and I've heard a lot of good things about the movie. Yeah, uh, no, Suicide Squad's real close. And then, I mean, obviously I'm looking forward to that because I'm a huge James Gunn fan. So that's yeah. like right up my alley. But it also does mean the next step along the way will be Guardians of the Galaxy, which, uh, you know, is my is my cherished property. So yeah. I, I, that just means we're ever, ever closer. It is, it is kind of funny that like, Again, when you go back to older episodes of like from last year and it's like the whole state of like what movies were and yeah. like movies getting delayed. And now we're just we're at back at a point where at the very least, you know, there's still a lot of debate about, you know, the streaming simultaneous movie theaters and what it means and a whole bunch of arguing. But at the very least, we have consistent movie schedules that like, oh, we know Guardians of the or sorry, we know Suicide Squad's coming out. We know um Shang Chi's coming out, and again, as of now, we know that No Time to Die is coming out this November. So, yeah, it's, um, it's weird because I haven't quite gotten in back into the swing of the new major releases. Yeah, yet right because now you're right because now it is like movies are back in theaters and people are going to theaters because even during like the Kong, the Godzilla versus Kong thing, like you could go see that in the movie theater, but I don't think that it was as common 
It was like still right at the beginning of everything starting to like kind of right. open, right? It still Whereas now, felt like a movie that was still primarily getting released on HBO Max, right? Mm-hmm. Now, like, now, with, now people are going to see old. People are going to go see. People are seeing old. Um, people are going to see Space Jam, unfortunately. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, that's all you need to know about our thoughts on Space Jam. My my. I'll say about Space Jam as as the and I will say I, I'm not getting too deep into it but as the one of the two of us my m- myself being the person who does have at least nostalgic fond memories of the first one and am definitely the person who like you know me I I am probably the number one person to give a movie like this a pass yeah like or at least like meet it halfway i should say and i definitely i had no plans of seeing it and my uh my girlfriend who is also has nostalgic memories of the first one definitely wanted to watch it somewhat ironically and so but it was one of those cases where that was the only way i was going to see it Mm -hmm. i was going to see it with a with a loved one so that that was it but yeah i but Bottom line, that was another HBO Max watch. And I saw Black Widow on Disney Plus. So, you know, cards on the table. I have not been to a theater yet. Um, Black Widow was the closest that we got because it was like a conversation about if that was going to be our first movie to go back into theaters. And it wasn't even like a comfort level thing. It was literally just like, it was like the morning or like the day before we planned on watching the movie. And we just kind of decided on a, just a in-home movie date, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was more of just like, oh, let's just like, you know, get some, you know, get some popcorn, some wine, sit down and like watch a movie at home. Which is interesting. I didn't think about that until way later on is like me being the person who does ultimately want to go back to the theater. Like I, I did opt to do that. Yeah. I mean, you sometimes know? it's just a convenience and like the yeah. feel. Yeah. I know? mean, for me, it, it it's, it was like, it's definitely like, I, I'm open to the idea, you know, it's, it's just more so like, as I've told everybody, the whole rushing in uh, after a year of not doing anything, uh, just for my own uh, uh, m- um, mental state is just yeah. you know, not something that I do. I just don't like. I don't rush back into the party. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Anyway, a- a- anyway, talking about <laughs> well, we were talking about that you didn't like Space Jam. Or like I didn't you- say I didn't say that. I didn't say I didn't. I just said that unfortunately some people want to go see it. I didn't reveal any thoughts about Space Jam. <laughs> and I do have nostalgic feelings about Space Jam, but I'm also someone who has watched Space Jam since I've grown up and been like, oh no, this is not nowhere near as as good you know what? a Looney Tunes All... movie or uh, like a, an enjoyable experience as I once listen, believed. Listen, we can all meet halfway at Looney Tunes back in action. You and I are very much on yeah. that train. I've been on, I've been Which on a getting it, it's getting it's a little bit of yes. its, uh like love it's retrospective love over the past. Hey, I've I've been on a I've been on a personal Joe Dante kick yeah. recently too. Yeah. Watch Inner Space. Yeah. I mean, well, if you're on a personal Joe Dante kick, I don't think he would want you to watch 
Looney Tunes back in action. If you know any of the no, I know, but it's like on that one. <laughs> but still, it's like I still think they made it work despite the issues with the production. Oh no, no, I'm uh, I'm yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, it, yeah. at, at this but point, go, every Looney Tunes movie. But has- yeah, go watch both Gremlins and yeah. go watch Inner Space, which Inner Space is on HBO Max, and I think probably Gremlins is also there or maybe coming soon because they're doing that new series. Who knows? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, no. They are. They're, they're on there. The, they're, the, they're both on there. Mogwai, Mogwai, yeah. the, the animated series. Yeah. I though so in more direct relation to this podcast, I have been enjoying the um, Waxwork Records Showa era vinyl collection. Nice, yeah. Um, and I've just been casually listening to the whole thing. I'm on Destroy All Monsters now. I don't rush through them. I just kind of mm-hmm. listen to them as as I uh as i wish um and and it's been great the whole presentation of the set is just awesome the box set is great the way that the records are kept are great um the art on it is spectacular and um yeah but it is interesting going through each one because just i I meant i i i texted you a little bit about this uh the other day but the just the jarring turn from um uh what what movie is it well the jarring turn right when you go into abira horror of the deep mm-hmm. like right when you go from monster zero and or in, yeah invasion invasion of astro monster yeah into abira horror of the deep it's like a it's like a complete 180, especially after listening so many of the Akira Ifakube scores, which are all kind of like very like old school sci-fi scores. And then you go into this hang ten, it's Godzilla. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, the, the very 60s like Batman influence sort of like aesthetic and and just the the very 60s jazz tone. Mm-hmm. That was very, very memorable pe- part of, of that experience. And again, I mean, going back, I mean, that's what I always loved about the Showa era, especially once you get to that, like, Abira era, you really never know oh, what yeah. you're going to get. And so there's there's kind of a miss, missing part of that, which is, like, why I actually have enjoyed going through these King Kong movies, because despite the fact that, like, three of them are so similar, they're still kind of like that, you never know what surprise is around the corner with each of these films. Yeah. And I think especially you know, going into, um, you know, that 70s Kong and like what, what the the experience that was King Kong lives, but even back to Son of Kong, um, even kind of rediscovering the nuances of 2005. I mean, we are kind of at the end of our Kong, uh, our, our series of Kong films. So it's been interesting to kind of reflect on on the journey. And, and Star Trek has been fun in the sense of like, it's been fun to like, you know, especially where we are in there to like really showcase these characters and the continuity and and just the interesting way those films connect and and just kind of the way that series has evolved with that original cast but i think it's just so doing something where it's like you have like kind of new films every couple years and just like every new creator puts their own spin on it i think it's been a really fun measure of going through like the Kong films in comparison going through like those Showa era Godzilla films there's just it's been fun to kind of go on along this journey well, speaking of uh, 70s Kong. Yes. Technically. Yeah, technically, yes. Yeah. Um, we are talking about today, finally. Finally. Uh, officially. So 
Uh, we are talking about Kong Skull Island from 2017. Uh, we have we have unofficially covered it before film many times. Yeah, is that I mean, if, again, if you go back, our podcast started in 2017. So mm-hmm. any new listeners who want to time travel back to see what our original right after the movie thoughts are, we do talk about the film briefly at the beginning of our original King Kong versus Godzilla episode, um, which I, which worked out timing wise. But otherwise, we have gone at length now of talking about the other films in the MonsterVerse. We do have our our full Godzilla 2014 review as part of our original uh, Godzilla timeline. We did a review of King of the Monsters, a very lengthy review of King of the Monsters when it came out, and just this year we finally did our review of uh, the, the Godzilla versus Kong film in the MonsterVerse. But we haven't had a chance. Uh, despite many flirtations of talking about this film at length. Uh, so I'm very excited to kind of dig into Kong Skull Island and, and talk about its place in the MonsterVerse and, and kind of have, we'll, we'll have sort of our, our thoughts on all four MonsterVerse films from different eras of the podcast, but all four MonsterVerse films will be available for you to figure out what our, what our thoughts are, which I think is super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've been, yeah. I've just been looking forward to to talk about this yeah. one, and so, it's it's a it's a fun be, rewatch. And, and also apologize for the Kong Skull Island related stories that will definitely be repeated in this yes. episode. Like yeah, this will there's, there's be two major. There's two of the go to stories I have revolving around this movie, and uh, for long time listeners, apologies. You will be hearing them again. Maybe they know. Maybe they know that you're a good listener if you know what the stories are. Yeah, and this will be like this will be like the compendium of our Kong Skull Island like related tangents. Like this will be all the ones that we have about this movie that will be featured in here, uh, which Mm -hmm. is super fun. Uh, So if you're ready, I think we can talk about a little bit about the development. Oh yeah, no. Again, and this this will be one that I I'll be able to add some of my own expertise on yeah so the origins of kong skull island are actually involved with a sequel to the peter jackson film um so obviously after the 2005 king kong very big success but there's no immediate need to be like, okay, well, it's, you know, one of our universal's highest grossing movies ever. It's, you know, one of the top hits of the year, but there's really no need to like universal to do like, okay, well we need more Kong stuff. You know, they, they start putting out more Kong merchandise and, you know, again, using that as universal studios, especially Hollywood um, advertisements to get you on the studio tour, everything like that. But the, the very much it's like Kong, just kind of sits as one of the the universal sort of mascots, quote unquote, that they just kind of put out like merchandise, like they do again with Back to the Future and and uh, you know other elements of their their history. Um, so again, for a long time, that's just kind of the way it goes. But then, 2013, this is right around that time where Peter Jackson is kind of on his Hobbit train. And, you know, he's kind of, there was a, that's a whole development story, but he wasn't going to direct the Hobbit films. And then he does direct the Hobbit films. And so there's a little bit more, okay, Jackson's kind of going back to the well of like what made him, you know, one of these famous directors. 
And at that point, Universal is kind of like, okay, well, maybe if Jackson's going back and dipping back into the Hobbit pot, maybe we can kind of do something with the, the Kong thing. So Universal talks to Jackson about, hey, what, what, what could we possibly do with Kong? You know, there's still a lot of love for your Kong film. Maybe we can figure out something to do. And, and Jackson necessarily isn't direct, interested in directing those films, just as, you know, he was, wasn't originally interested in directing The Hobbit. But he is, you know, kind of interested in like, well, maybe we can do something interesting with just the Skull Island idea. Um, so he, um, he initially kind of taps some ideas about it could be a prequel that's set before uh, King Kong and, and still features Kong. It could be a sequel to 2005, which focuses purely on Skull Island and its other monsters and creatures that without Kong. So there's kind of a back and forth of exactly about what the movie is exactly going to be. Um, but in fact, you know, Jackson is already talking about directors for this movie. Of course, he keeps in mind his friend Guillermo del Toro, who was originally going to direct the Hobbit films before he had to drop out. Uh, but the, the, the hand chosen pick of Peter Jackson was actually one Adam Wingard, which to my understanding, and this was something I learned fairly recently during all the Godzilla versus Kong stuff. Like he, he was, it seemed to be like, he was like the first, like bit, he was like the real big choice Yes, that saw that up until they spoil or it's eventually dropped the project was going to be the director of it. Yes. Yeah. So basically, no, it was like Jackson's kind of handpicked, not like necessarily protege, but he, Jackson saw a lot in Adam Wingard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Wingard was going to be attached to this film that was going to be produced by Peter Jackson uh, that it would eventually be teased at the 2014 Universal Studios Comic-Con panel uh, or, uh, through Legendary, which is a story that you, ha- you have. This is a teaser uh, yeah. that you saw at Comic-Con, and this so, was through like Universal and Legendary at the time. So let me – I'm going to back up a little slightly just as a uh, – just a, an amendment on yes. – on, on, so my understanding, and I could be wrong, but – Yes, you are 100% right that Adam Wingard was the guy who he was going to be the new he was going to be the guy. Now, in terms of what that movie was going to be, my understanding is that the details on that are a little fuzzy. Obviously, yeah. Wingard himself would admit that it was it's nowhere near because it's, it was a completely different project what he ultimately ended up doing with Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I guess, with with yeah. Godzilla versus Kong. But so my understanding was is that they completely had dropped that concept. And then at a certain point that had led to the rights of King Kong being, what was it like distributed or produced by Warner brothers? Yeah. So basically, yeah. So 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 my understanding is that the, the, the slate, that the, the slate was swept clean and then like the transfer of the rights happened. Right. So that leads into the story that I have. Right. So basically what kind of happened was Universal, Jackson and Wingard were kind of working on this idea for something that was connected to the 2005 Kong film um, where um, initially at the 2014 Comic-Con, it was going to be legendary with Universal. So basically what happens. Kind oh, yeah, of sk- no, I, yeah, that 100% skipping ahead in the story at this same period in 2014, 
Legendary is also helping to make and produce the 2014 version of Godzilla. And as the Legendary team starts to develop sort of, okay, we're also working on this Kong film, they kind of start to see, well, you know, right now... No, but I guess yeah. what, I'm tr- what I'm trying to say is, like, I thought that Wingard was off of that project by that time. Yes, yes. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah but, just... but, the, but it's kind of like simultaneously stuff is happening where it's like they're still... They're, the initial work is being done with the Universal, and that's where the Comic-Con announcement comes from. And that's yes, at, okay, that, so, at that point, that is right. still a Universal um, so, right. thing. Okay, so this will lead into the story that I have. Yes. Okay, so skip, uh, travel back in time. Let's hop in the Wayback Machine all the way to the 2014 San Diego Comic-Con, where me and my buddy... Uh, uh, pod of the friend cast patrick who's been on said podcast uh we were both in our seats uh in hall h the infamous hall h and uh we were going through all this stuff and you know one of the things you do as you're waiting in line for hall h you like see the panel of different studios that are going to be there and one of them was um uh universal uh, I believe it was like either Universal or Legendary, probably both of them. And we were wondering what it was going to be. And at that time, Jurassic World hadn't come out yet. Now, me and pa- Patrick and I are huge Jurassic Park fans. And we were like saying like, oh, they're going to show a trailer for Jurassic World. Like, the, oh, that, that's awesome. We can't wait to see that. So we so we're sitting in the in the in the in the big in the hall and a trailer starts and it's like a voiceover about like there there's an island somewhere that it's like that man is not meant to go back to blah 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 and he's like until this day and then the screen pops on and it's like a big rainy day or a bit like a big stormy night and this camera panning into this island and then patrick and i are like whoa like thinking like oh it's like oh it's fucking jurassic park and then, and then the camera starts panning through the island, and then the, and then it highlights the like a classic skull island skull. And so our reaction went from a very audible ah! to a very audible oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we were we were really confused about that one. So that's like our funny story that, and it wasn't even that we weren't into it. It was just like. It was one of those famous like a ner- nerds getting prematurely excited about something. Right. So, but, yeah. But to your point, what was the the more important takeaway of that is like just to kind of tell everybody what it was. That was kind of what it was and it was like all stormy and then they had like the like the big skull and then they said and and I, I think it just said something vague like coming soon or maybe it said Skull Island and then it had a giant that had a money shot of kong in the rain um you know doing his beating chest kong thing so it was very clear one is that it was extraordinary there were it was a very early pitch trailer to really show that we're making a king kong thing yes and that it's going to be called skull island mm-hmm. like that that's what it was nothing like what it ended up being no not at all um and it was looking like you know to, for the lack of a better term it looked like it was just heading into that gritty reboot territory mm-hmm. right is that that's what they were selling based off of it yeah um 
now, but this makes sense. So, and also this was the same Comic-Con where we had just had the release of the 2014 Godzilla Mm -hmm. and they had announced, and this was at the time, remember that Gareth Edwards was still going to direct the, the, the sequel. Yes. So they were announcing that we're going to direct the sequel and that Mothra, Ghidorah, and Rodan were going to be in it. Yes. They, they, they had laid that out on the table, that mm-hmm. that's what was going to happen. Um, now, that makes sense, and then you have this, like, this very ambiguous Kong trailer. So that fits in to basically what you're saying about how there is, there's this transition period. Yeah, so so now, ba- it, it, it happens it fairly quickly. So basically, behind the scenes, again, there's kind of like – you're exactly right that that universal legendary kind of trailer at comic-con was almost just a pitch of like we're developing a kong movie because this was also at kind of the peak time i feel of like we need stuff at comic-con to like wow people because i think a couple years after this is like when you know we start getting a lot more of like oh you know everybody's like online and like you can kind of not see everything but like everything's kind of known what's going on in hall h whereas like that was still that kind of period where it's like oh you have to be here for the moments mm-hmm. and you still have that element i mean again we'll see what happens when comic-con does come back but i feel like like 2011 to 2014 2015 was like the peak of like you need to be in hall h for these moments and then after that it's kind of like well everybody reports these moments so you're kind of there anyway or like they're kind of more like, oh, you eventually see all this footage anyway. But this was really kind of like a, we need to showcase something. We're going to showcase this Kong movie. So there's still a lot of questions with like, again, Wingard and Jackson sort of, and like and, sort of the and, in and, and out of it. Can I, and, and just personally, if I can say as a fan, it was just super interesting because my understanding is that that was nowhere on anybody's radar. Not at all. And, and at this point, like we kind of say, and, and really it remains to this day that Peter Jackson's Kong remained the most modern day definitive Kong. So the fact that they were kind of doing that was right. like kind of a, like, oh, I guess that, you know, they're making a new King Kong yeah. film. Yeah. And so basically what kind of happens is there's, again, a lot of questions about what that actually film would be. Even from that teaser, we didn't, you know, there was still like, you know, that the decision to include Kong in that teaser is kind of an indication that they were doing something with Kong. But again, it was like, was it going to be before, like early on in like the 19, you know, 1910s? Would it be after and maybe do something kind of Son of Kong-ish? Like there was still a lot of questions in terms of the development when they showed that and we're, trailer. We're, this, we're talking about when it's a legendary production, right? Yes, it's still, so, it's still yeah. through Legendary and Universal. So. so my understanding is, is that during this time, they went all over the map. The, the most popular one was, is that, they wanted it in modern day at some point during the movie. Yeah. It was like the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the writers, they they were talking about ideas of it um, taking place even like soon, like even further back in time. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a lot of a lot of questions about exactly what that film yeah, would be. The Vietnam Vietnam War was on the table at a certain point, but. Yeah. The, the idea that like the studio kind of always wanted it to modernize it was always was kind of like a mainstay mm-hmm. um, 
So that and, was that was that was definitely something that was happening. And, and essentially, it's just around this time that they kind of produced this teaser. Again, Legendary is working on this Kong film with Universal at the same time that they just you know worked on and released and helped out with the 2014 Godzilla film. And they have these plans to do the big sequel with, as we mentioned, with Mothra, Dan, and Godzilla, which eventually becomes King of the Monsters. But they sort of there's a kind of an internal discussion at Legendary about well. If we can, you know, make a deal to transition this project into Warner Brothers, which currently is releasing these Godzilla films, we could add Kong into sort of this big monster universe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this again, this was kind of we're at the sort of initial like people are really trying to capitalize on the Marvel Cinematic Universe thing at this point. Right. This is when. This is right around DC's trying to do their plans. And, you know, we're, we're, everybody's kind of trying to really focus on like, okay, connecting everything and stuff like that. So legendary really quickly after this trailer, I mean, cause the transition from Warner brothers, this trailer happens, you know, at the comic 2014 comic con. And essentially like, it's not too long after that, that, the transition to Warner brothers happened because by September, that's when John vote Roberts initially joins the project. So it's basically like a very quick transition where they discuss with universal about transitioning these King Kong rights to, to Warner brothers for this universe. And from what I can gather, I mean, it's never really been explicitly said on why universal sort of gave up on the project, but I think universal, I think they liked the idea of doing a new Kong movie, but they weren't attached to it. They were just kind of like, again, Jackson's doing this Hobbit thing, so maybe we can kind of capitalize on that and kind of do another kind of like old Jackson property new. And I think that at the end of the day, Universal really looked at their slate of projects, and obviously they were working on new Jurassic Park movies at this time. They were kind of working on, they, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where they're, you know, making a bunch of Fast and Furious movies. I think that it was just the point where Universal was very much happy with the slate that they had. They felt like they didn't necessarily need this Kong movie. They could kind of make this arrangement. And still, again, you know, one of the main things they use Kong for was for their theme parks and was for kind of their merchandising. So even with Kong Skull Island, a lot of that Kong stuff still exists at Universal Studios. So they can just kind of go along with it. So eventually Uni Legendary is successful on transitioning the project to Warner Brothers and uh, to add it into this new monster world. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, that's when, again, Jackson is gone, Wingard is gone. Uh, one of the considerations for a director was Joe Cornish, but eventually John Voigt, John Vote Roberts. Jordan. Jordan Vote Roberts. Were you about uh, to correct me on his name? <laughs> no, I was, I was correcting myself because I was like, no, John Voight is a completely different person. No, no, yeah. Jo Jordan right. Vote Roberts. I, yeah. That's a, yeah, so Jordan Vote Roberts does eventually sign on to the project. Yeah. And, of, and then also, you know, no discredit to Jordan Vote Roberts, who, you know, as you know, has I've become quite a fan of. But... You know, there was a level of, you know, here is a guy who I think is caught up in the trend that was really going on at the time of you made an indie movie that people kind of liked. Here's a blockbuster. Well, yeah, no, that, I mean, that's very much. I mean, it's just sort of, again, like the in many ways it was slash is the Marvel model. Right. Is like you bring in like the 
guy who does like the Sundance movie or the indie movie that's super popular and you give him the superhero slash big blockbuster movie. And uh, Jordan Vote Roberts was coming off of his indie darling film, Kings of Summer. Mm hmm. Uh, and this is basically like the next project that he lined up. Kings of Summer was 24, what, 2013. And by the end of 2014, he's attached to this, you know, King Kong movie, which again, by the time that he joins, there's still a lot of questions about how exactly it is going to play and how it's going to fit in the MonsterVerse. Because now, Legendary... Right, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, because also Vote Roberts, you know, he, he did say that all those things that we were talking about, about them making it in modern day or them keeping it back in like the world war one period that th those were still on the table. Like those were like the things that he went in and saw that that's kind of the movie that they were developing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure this is kind of what you were getting into where, as we'll learn through the process of talking about this movie, that Jordan Vo Roberts was, you know, his, his kind of mantra with like making this film was that he didn't want any of it to be, um, recognizable he wanted to honor exactly like an image and like the the legend of what he was doing but he didn't want any of it to be recognizable to any of the kong films because you know he as much as he wanted to do it he did ask the question well why even make this movie mm -hmm. and the idea that gravitated him to him the most was the vietnam 70s idea right so as he's a kind of attached as well, um, we also have writers attached. So the first draft is written by Max Bornstein, who also wrote uh, the 2014 Godzilla yeah, film. Yeah, he's involved in the MonsterVerse. Yes, uh, very as much a whole. so. Yeah. So because it, it's it's Bornstein who like he he gets hired to do this film, and his immediate thought is, well, I don't want to do the classic Kong film. I don't want to do the Beauty and the Beast thing. I don't want to do the 30s thing. I don't want to do any of that. I want to take the Kong character and concept and do something completely different with it. And so he he was he was the first one to really attempt sort of the Apocalypse Now version where but his version was as you were saying was something that was going to start off in vietnam and then kind of transition into something in the modern day you know in the same time frame as the godzilla film but but legendary uh was still interested in kind of showcasing you know mostly an earlier era of their universe um so the next idea was going back to a world war one era thing um while still kind of being you know, influenced by, you know, Apocalypse Now slash Heart of Darkness in which, you know, uh, the character the, the character that would eventually become Tom Hiddleston's character in the film was like going off the Skull Island to search for his missing brother who went to find some sort of, you know, mythical serum, you know, mythical plant that could help, you know, uh, save lives or, or something to that extent. Again, you know, that was also kind of rejected and then it kind of back to the modern day. But when vote roberts joined the project um and talked to bornstein vote roberts really kind of captured the vietnam concept and the and the 70s concept and um and so what roberts kind of brings in okay let's ditch any attempt of doing a modern day part of that story and let's do something that's right at the end of the vietnam war and really captures sort of the that sort of feeling of you know characters and time and place and plot and you know you know bringing that all in together for a movie 
And Legendary finally kind of accepted, okay, this Apocalypse Now slash Vietnam War idea. If we go all in on the 70s era, instead of trying to split it, that could work. So that's where sort of the the confirmation of the Vietnam era and the 70s era of the film uh, comes into play. So there are a couple other characters, uh, sorry, a couple other screenwriters join the project once this sort of Vietnam project comes into uh, full confirmation. Uh, Dan, writer Dan Gilroy had also done a draft and Derek Conley uh, did some rewrites as well, where Bornstein came back to do the shooting script. And he said that it was one of those projects where everybody kind of contributed something to the project. Um where Bornstein kind of takes the main sort of plot and sort of the overarching, you know, place in the universe and everything like that. Every writer who came in kind of added their own little bit and piece. Um, But there is another quote that I wanted to read, which I thought was very interesting, or at least another concept where uh, Gilroy, that third writer that came in said that he liked the film. But one of the things that he said about the movie was that he had initially added a lot more backstory to characters, something that wasn't cut out uh, of the final draft for just pacing purposes. Um, just some interesting sort of ideas that I thought were kind of in the movie where originally he had Tom Hiddleston's character actually had experienced a monster during his time in Vietnam. And so the thing he was chasing was proof that he wasn't crazy about this, you know, monster thing that he saw. And then Brie Larson's character was a lot more jaded about her time in Vietnam. And then Kong sort of kind of reawakens her in terms of sort of her, her like vision of the world and sort of like a, a, a bigger eye for like, you know, there's bigger stuff out there than, than us humans. So uh, he said he was always disappointed that that stuff, like, you know, their characters were sort of very much, uh, you know, simplified for the film, though he did say that he was very proud of like what he did contribute to the final film and thought that the film turned out very well. Um, so with that, like the, the script, you know, and, and vote Roberts does also have a lot of say in sort of his influences and his sort of vision for the movie. Um, and which he's talked about many times, uh, in terms of kind of like what his viewpoint is, cause he's already taking like a visual eye for what he wants to, um, do. And, and, and vote Roberts was very much someone who was passionate about including, you know, very unique and different monster designs and not just having Kong as the main, you know, Kong's obviously the main focus of the film and the main creature, but Vote Roberts was always someone who wanted to kind of have a lot of different creatures and make Skull Island feel like a, a completely different ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, just kind of like from the, one of the, like two of the big things that come to mind that, I mean, that he was very passionate about well, like, first of all, starting from Kong himself, because the Kong in this movie is more akin to like the toe, like a Toho monster, where it's more of like a creature, like a like a missing link esque, mm-hmm. uh, lost in time, stands up straight, ape like creature, rather than a more grounded, realistic approach seen in like the Jackson Kong, mm-hmm. and. There's many stories in the special features of the of the Blu-ray and that you can probably find online that Vote Roberts would uh, – that it was more of a challenge than even he thought it was with the artists and the visual effects people 
to uh, achieve that look because especially in this in this day and age and of that time, you know, everybody just wanted to go more realistic and grounded. Mm-hmm. So like they were always going for like, make him more ape-like and like, you know, hunched over and like, you know, having like, uh, you know, the classic like hands on the ground, but then could stand up where Vote Roberts wanted more of like a more bipedal, like, like godlike figure was always kind of the direction he wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And and then the second one was that he was very adamant that this Skull Island, he didn't want to do dinosaurs again. Yeah. It was like the big thing. Um, and that he wanted to make a more original um, or a more unique, uh, like you said, ecosystem and actually create creatures and monsters that if you hadn't seen before in another film, you definitely hadn't seen before on Skull Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of his like inspirations for that, as for the most of the other film, is like Miyazaki and yeah, he Mononoke. talks specifically about um, Princess Mononoke and the yeah. creature design and the, and the character design in that film, just kind of being its own, you know, spirit and its own mind and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And especially um, importantly to the main sort of villain of this film, the skull crawlers were mm-hmm. a big point of like, we need to make these creatures, you know, unique and vicious and make them probably you know, the best new big monster design that I can think of in recent memory. Absolutely. Like, yeah. 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 Um, and, and a lot of influences from there again, vote Roberts very much takes a lot of inspiration from anime and video games. He's very much like a modern director in all the senses of the word in terms of what his influences are. Mm-hmm. Like for the skull crawlers, um, again, he does reference Miyazaki, no face from spirited away. Um, Cubone from uh, Pokemon, Cubone from Pokemon yeah. and, and some of the designs from Evangelion as well, mm-hmm. um, which he, which very much are influential on, on, on the skull crawlers. Uh, but basically, yeah, they tried to really kind of create like a, a new world of Skull Island, like a world that really hadn't been, you know, seen or, you know, kind of like because the traditional Skull Island is very much like, oh, it's like, you know, evolution wasn't disturbed and the yeah, dinosaurs never died or whatever. Whereas this mm-hmm. one is very much like, no, this is just like this. This is its own world, its own universe in in, in its own sense. Yeah. And you really. And kind- it, well, and it's also funny, like, you know, as the movies went on, we learn a little bit more about like it's actually uh, a piece of the hollow earth. Yes. Uh, from, yeah. As, as again, that's more so as the movies go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does, you know, and Volt Roberts also said that he did take a lot of um, inspiration, too, from the 33 Kong more so than the other Kongs that existed that they're kind of a more exaggerated, almost cartoony type of aesthetic and, and sort of, again, sort of a movement as opposed to, again, Jackson's more realistic version of the creature. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then also we get some uh, casting as well, which I think is important to talk about this movie, because again, we're kind of what's, what's I thought was always unique about the MonsterVerse casting was the fact that, though these films were connected that each film really did focus in on its own cast of characters. And while you would have some crossover between films, it wasn't as if like, Oh, we're leading to all these characters meeting. So it allowed vote Roberts to kind of really sort of get who he wanted and, and ideas that he had for characters and actors without having to worry about signing them to, you know, big deals. Or yeah. Whatever. It is interesting. Like this is more of kind of like a, like a retrospective thing is that, 
this was a universe that was more so connected by like the bigger spectacle rather than it was by the individual characters. Yeah. Um, and then there was also like a level of like, you know, this was going to take place in the seventies and, mm -hmm. and to be frank, I mean, we got all this casting without r even really knowing much about the movie. At exactly. Point. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so first person cast, and it, it was very, very shortly after the vote Roberts directing was announced was Tom Hiddleston uh, as sort of the lead male character in this movie. Uh, and, and it's really like, I mean, we were all on the Hiddleston train recently because of Loki uh, the series and I've always been a big fan of his Loki but 2014 like in 2015 when this movie was really being developed in earnest uh, at least I had kind of the version that this you know the final product would become was right about that time where like Hiddleston was really starting to kind of branch out into kind of his own sort of leading man projects that he had been sort of Loki and the supporting character in the MCU for so long, but he does, this is around the time he does that uh, AMC series where he plays the hotel manager. I think that's mm -hmm. actually the name of the series, like the hotel manager or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and this was this kind of opportunity to hit for him to be sort of the, the lead in a big project like this. Mm -hmm. um, and we know, we know Hiddleston, he loves kind of well, being Tom involved Hiddleston, in Tom Hiddleston was just loved. Like people just loved Loki like yeah. they, they love Tom Hiddleston so, and I, I yeah. think it's a mutual thing because Hiddleston you know people love him from Loki and love him because he's hot on it but honestly like more so than Hemsworth at the time yes for sure like, people have to remember Hemsworth I think once he became funny then yes. he became really loved yes like so like of the of the Thor franchise it was definitely Hiddleston was the was the popular cat right and then um but the other thing too is like I think it's also to be made, said meant to be said that people loved Hiddleston, but Hiddleston also really did love like kind of being in these types of movies and these That's types true. of roles. Yeah, like he like again if you hear him talk about like Loki now, like he's someone who just genuinely enjoys playing the character and being in the big world and kind of having all these different angles on the character. And I think that that Hiddleston is someone who like really does. We we've talked about people like timothy dalton before who maybe don't like you know like acting but don't like the celebrity of acting or don't like you know necessarily kind of constantly being involved in these big franchises and these big spectacles though, though they continue to do them because they are you know good roles and big roles and good money making roles but i think hiddleston someone who like generally loves what he does and loves the craft of what he does no matter what type of movie he's in he is someone who really enjoys sort of having these type of roles within his filmography well, and then also at the same time, too, like that was kind of like the common thread through a lot of the cast. I remember going through a lot of like the interviews and stuff at the time, and it seemed that there was an energy of everybody who was in the movie kind of enjoyed being in a movie like that. Mm -hmm. um, specifically people like, I mean, I remember specifically Samuel Jackson saying like, I've always wanted to be in a King Kong movie, yeah. which is another thing about the power of King Kong as a legacy figure. Like even like John Goodman um, was like saying like, oh, it's King Kong. It's uh, Yeah, it's like it's like an honor to be in a movie like that. Well, I think what's funny, too, is that I was going to mention this next, but um, though the, the Jackson and John Goodman roles were not always theirs. There was actually... Oh, yeah, no, 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 it wasn't. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Two, two other actors attached initially to uh, play 
the Colonel Packer, what eventually become the Colonel Packer character. That was originally J.K. Simmons uh, was supposed to play sort of the military that leader. That, I, uh, I could see that, yeah. And then John Would have been Good- good too. Would have yeah. been great. And then John Goodman's character, uh, who is sort of, you know, a, a, a high-ranking figure of Monarch and, you know, trying to kind of, you know, get into sort of, you know, his own means of getting into Skull Island, kind of the kind of government official, but not really government official type character. That was supposed to be Michael Keaton for a long time. Uh, and I, both- can, I can see both of those. Yeah. Yeah, I get, uh, I get. Yeah, it's funny because I was reading like a Jackson interview where like he I, I think it was kind of funny because he tried to not mention J.K. Simmons by name. But we all know it was supposed to be J.K. Simmons because this whole thing was like, yeah, all they needed to say was Kong. And I was in like, right. that's all you needed to say. But then he was like, yeah, the original guy they had, like he decided he didn't want to travel like to Vietnam. He didn't want to be with his family so long. But I'm like, yeah, I'll do it for to do a King Kong movie. Like, absolutely. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it just turned out that like. Keaton ended up having scheduling conflicts and J.K. Simmons sort of changed his mind about sort of going off to shoot on location in like Vietnam and everything like that. So eventually, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson and John Goodman kind of fill in those roles, Um, as well as also coming shortly in after 2015 um, is when Brie Larson joins the cast. uh, Which was, again, her coming off of Room, you know, this whole big buzz about about the movie starting to get paved yeah Mm -hmm. right like because she was someone who's been in the game for a long you know for a good amount of years and had done a lot of roles but like you know she was getting that oscar buzz and and room would eventually you know get her that oscar and everything like that so she was basically like right put on board for the project and this was again right when she was getting um big you know big blockbuster roles i mean you know again she eventually is captain marvel off of all that i do want to i want to save a bigger appreciation for this man when we get to the movie itself oh yeah, yeah but uh john c Riley is a part of the cast as well um and I, I really have a lot to say about him but i will save that uh one of the things i did find interesting we also have uh tony kebble who joined the project uh but what's interesting about kebble is kebble yes is uh a a film you know is in the film as sort of an uh regular character but Kebble also had had experience with motion capture and effects, uh, ape effects, because Kebble had played one of the apes in the very recent Planet of the Apes, you know, reboot films. So while Kebble did not actually play Kong in this movie, uh, Kebble was also brought on board um, to help the eventual Kong motion capture person, Terry Notary, uh, giving him tips on how to do motion capture and how mm-hmm. to most effectively, you know, be Kong and be an ape uh, to that extent. So and Terry and Terry Notary would be another person who would go on to do even more mocap work on, yes. like even the Marvel films and yeah. Um, uh, and then the kind of the rest of sort of the film uh, is kind of filled in by you know a lot of different kind of I wouldn't say bit players, but like. Sort of like, kind of like they're filled in this in movie. By other- yes, in this movie, bit players. Yes, yeah. yeah. Let's just be hey, honest. Hey, well, remember, they're only, they're only no small parts, only small actors. No, no. Hey, listen, I'm not saying. You know, I'm just saying. In in this movie, they're definitely they're bit players. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not nothing against their talents. I mean, yeah, you got John Ortiz, um, Shay Wingham, obviously, always like stealing, like uh, stealing the scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
bunch of bunch of people play soldiers, bunch of people play um you know other monarch characters, everything like that. It, um, you know, it is funny because it it is like when you watch the movie, especially if you watch a lot of movies, it, the, the the cast it, it's it really is kind of an all star cast where even like the bit players like you've seen in other movies, right? Like, I mean, I have seen all of the soldiers in other things, right? Like Thomas right? Mann is like, yeah, like you have Kong Skull Island, but he's like, you know, also in like indie films, like he's me, me and Earl and the Dying Girl, and he was in you know, Project X, you know, that sort of thing. Like you, you, you recognize these people from other films. Yeah. You just kind of like, it, it's definitely, if you know, it, it, cause Jordan vote Roberts is like a big kid director. And it mm-hmm. just seems like, I mean, frankly, it seems like what you, what, what me and our peers would probably cast even the bit players as is like, you know, Oh yeah, we liked, him in this like let's get him to be like you know the 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 soldier with a few funny lines and right and it's like, like yeah. small roles by like richard jenkins as the center at the beginning like just a lot of people yeah that are richard like jenkins is even in this movie <laughs> um also one thing that did kind of pop up and again some people know this some people don't know this is um uh, Thomas Middle Thomas Middleditch yeah Tom, <laughs> Tom, Thomas Middleditch was eventually go on to be in um King of the Monsters, Monsters, uh, but he has a voice role in this movie as Jerry. And I think if I remember correctly, when they did that live tweeting, when we did the live tweeting for um, the King of the Monsters and Skull Island and everything, when they did that at the beginning of the pandemic last year, they confirmed that the two Middleditch characters are relatives, that they are related to each other. Got it. Um, okay. with, within the MonsterVerse universe. Right, because are... it wasn't not the same character, but related. But they are related. Uh, yes. So, you know, uh, they decide to um, film basically a lot of most of the movie on location um, in uh, Vietnam, mostly um, itself in the jungles of Vietnam and everything like that. Um, and they also did a little bit of uh, uh, filming in uh, Queensland, Australia as well. And Honolulu. So basically, they kind of did a lot of this exotic, you know, going off to these jungles and everything to, you know, augment sort of the special effects laid and stuff of the island, uh, while also kind of really capturing the true nature of jungles and and sort of that section of the world, the South Pacific. Um, also, very famously from that is really where uh, Jordan Vogt Roberts has his love affair with the country of Vietnam. Uh, and since this movie's filming, Vote Roberts and Vietnam have had a very cozy relationship uh, to the point where Vietnam almost made him the official ambassador of tourism in the country because Vote uh, Roberts really fell in love with the country and its people uh, during the filming of this movie. Um, but yeah, Vote uh, Roberts has basically said that he really, you know, takes a lot from his anime, anime influences um like especially neon uh genesis evangelion prince mononoke as we 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 uh mentioned before but also was very much trying to capture sort of the spirit of that 70s cinema cinema especially that 70s like kind of political you know conspiracy cinema such as stuff like apocalypse now the conversation uh to an extent also uh platoon and uh the south korean film the host uh, was also a very big influence on this movie. And 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 Vote Roberts has said that especially visually 
like anime and video games really set kind of the tone for um, how he wanted to shoot Kong and how he wanted to shoot the action, action sequences. Um, for example, there's a lot of first person stuff in the initial uh, meeting with Kong, you know, when they're all in the helicopters and vote Roberts has said that that's basically him making a live action first person shooter Uh you know, and shooting it as if you were a character in a first-person shooter or you were a character in kind of like a, a first-person Uncharted game um, that, you know, there was kind of that aesthetic that he really wanted to capture with the film itself. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, um, I, again, there was sort of... Again, I think it's also interesting to talk about it with the the within the context of it being like the second monster verse movie, because while it is very much something that really does stand on its own, uh, you know, as kind of like part of this monster verse, it also is sort of trying to insert the small little bits that kind of connected to the wider, you know, monster verse, like, you know, including Monarch as this organization that we met in Godzilla but also like, you know, it's kind of not necessarily its origins, it kind of getting a little bit into its origins, but really showcasing it as sort of this lengthy history of Monarch. And that it's not just, oh, Godzilla was like the first monster. No, like monsters have always existed and, you know, they've always tried to be hidden. Well, I kind of have a two part thing about it being in the monster verse, but I kind of want this to lead into when we talk about the movie. So I didn't know if you had something before we talk about it. No, I mean, it's just like, and it's just sort of, in many ways, it's kind of like a very modern production. You know, it's very, uh, not like a ton of like bad stories in terms of the actual production of it. Nothing too really crazy like happened on it. It was just basically like, you know, most of it was sort of getting to the design process and, you know, kind of transitioning it from this, you know, again, the original sort of like, is it a related to Jackson's Kong? No, we're moving it to Warner Brothers or at what era it's going to be in. And once it settled in on that Vietnam era, it really, and once you had Vote Roberts on board, it really felt everything really started to congeal, especially once they kind of really figured out what the, what the aesthetic of this Skull Island was going to be and what the aesthetic of this Kong was going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing I was going to mention as we lead into talking about the movie was that, so, the the real big announcement for this movie came in twofold, really. And the, fir- the first was that there was the announcement that it was going to be in this monsterverse. Mm-hmm. That I remember the day where they gave this announcement, like, it's like, okay, like, we have all this information about Kong Skull Island, and this is what it's going to be. Like, and that that's the name of the movie. It's coming out this time. Then our sequel to Godzilla will be Godzilla King of the Monsters. And it's all going to come to a head in Godzilla versus Kong. Because once again, like you said, this was during the time when, you know, everybody kind of wanted a little bit of a universe and everybody was planning out their slates. And that came with the usual appropriate excitement and cynicism as, you know, we're all accustomed to. Which is, I always thought was funny because one of the things was like, oh, they're making movies and then they, but that they have to reach a certain date and none of these movies have kept a date, which I think is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, and then so soon after that, it was like, okay, we know that they're going to do that. And soon after that, the trailer dropped 
and completely blew the lid off of, I think, what any of us thought that this movie was going to be. That it was going to be this kind of like crazy, like monster island, vibrant apocalypse now crossover that with this goofy, like fun um, John C. Riley type character. I had to be on it. Like when the trailer dropped for it, I never thought I would ever be excited for a King Kong movie. Mm-hmm. And like, even when the slate came out, I'm like, well, I'm interested in these movies because they're Godzilla movies essentially. But then when that first trailer for this film came out, I, I was gobsmacked about yeah. like what it looked like it was shaping into. And then it just immediately got on my radar. And then that led us into the movie that we're going to talk about right now. Yeah. Uh, the one, the one last thing, cause I just uh, remembered in this in my notes. Uh, the one other funny note from the movie was that uh, Jackson has also talked about how during the production of the film, the one issue that they did have was there was a lot of debate and a lot of inconsistency about how tall this Kong was going to be. Cause obviously on set, you know, you're not actually seeing Kong. You're kind of like reacting and looking up. But there was a lot of like questioning, like when they were shooting about, well, is it going to be like this big or that big? Like, where is our sight line? And it was, you know, we, we talk about it, it's a lot because of, you know, trying to match up that Kong with eventually, you know, getting ready to fight Godzilla. And this eventually would become the largest Kong uh, by a significant margin uh, over any of the other Kongs uh, out there. And well, and then as an extension to that, Jordanville Roberts and the cinematographers spent a lot of time on visual effects tests on how to actually shoot the film. Yes. Knowing, having that information, like, because there was a lot of like, they knew the aspect ratio they wanted to shoot in, but how do you shoot that? Also kind of handheld, but knowing that you're going to have like a huge monster in the frame and yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and with that, I think it's time for us to to finish our our at least as of now, uh, finish our reviews of the MonsterVerse and have our full collection with our extended take on Kong Skull Island. Yeah, that's Kong. He's king around here. He's God to these people. Kong's a pretty good king. Keeps to himself mostly. This is his home. We're just guests here. Well, you don't go into someone's house and start dropping bombs unless you're picking a fight. Wasn't Kong the one who killed your friend? No. One of them did. Kong's God on the island. But the devils live below us. And what are they called? The Iwis won't speak their name. But I call them skull crawlers. Why? Because it sounds neat. Okay. Look, I just made that name up. I'm trying to scare you. I'm fine calling them that. Are you cool with that? Yeah, that, that seems like a I good, like seems the name, like a, a so name. I think you... Never said that name out loud before. It sounds stupid now that I say it. Just, you call them whatever you want. All right, it's time. We're back and ready to chat 
about the 2017 <sighs> movie Kong Skull Island. Again, it's it's funny to think about like just just in terms of the history of this podcast. It's, it's you know this is really back when we first started this podcast. You know this was like within the first three months and. To reflect on that, that is, you know, my infancy as sort of a giant monster movie kaiju fan. Because, you know, I, I, I've talked about before, I only, you know, I had been shown Biolante. I had seen, you know, um, uh, Final Wars. I had been shown Final Wars. I had seen the American cut of the original King of the uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And I had seen 2014 Godzilla. And that was my kind of education. And in terms of my Kong education at that time, like, you know, I like every other film student, I had seen the 33 Kong at some point, and I had, you know, been was familiar with the 2005 Kong, and I knew the Kong story. So kind of going back to like where I am now, and how much has changed since then, just in terms of my filmic viewing, and my Kong knowledge, and my Godzilla knowledge, and my giant monster movie, and my kaiju knowledge, it's kind of crazy to reflect upon, and it's it's really kind of interesting. Uh, As your friend, it, it I can definitely attest that this was one of the films where I saw that you 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 uh, being open to monster films and really embracing them was really some was re the cement was starting to dry um, in terms of like you really being in on, yes. on these films with, with this one. I mean, for me, I, any chance for me to dive back into the monster verse is a good day. Yeah. As far as yeah. Uh, especially a movie like this. Um, yeah. this movie to me has only gotten better with age. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. think that this is such, I mean, there, there's, we, we talked about this before. This is, there is an argument to be made that for a long time and to an extent, possibly still that this is the most popular entry oh, in the monsterverse here, here, here's how i'll how i'll say it like you know just to lay my cards out on the table i think there is a good argument to be made that this is the best of the four films i think this and is definitely the I, most and I, fun and i and i did not begrudge anybody by on mass by saying that this may have been their favorite one um you know, out of the films, my personal favorite is still probably King of the Monsters. And and I think that it's been interesting seeing when I talk to people about Godzilla versus Kong, I th think that that movie just purely gives the most people what they want from the these films. Yes. But there's a good argument to be made that this is kind of more so of the best casual viewer just wanting to see a creature feature. Yeah, I film. think... I think this is definitely like the most, like, I think it's a part of it too is like, this is definitely the most purely fun mm -hmm. uh, of like the four, uh, even considering uh, like the fights in Godzilla versus Kong. I think that like, as a whole, just the aesthetic and the oh, yeah. mood no, 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 and no. the tone yeah. and the look and the characters, like this is just the most pure fun. And in many ways, it's like funny because like, we will talk about it. Like, yes, like, there's a lot of characters and not all of them get like the justice they deserve. But at the end of the day, you could also argue that this is the well swell, like just put together purely just from an entertainment standpoint that like from moment one to moment a hundred, that this is just well put together, that it's just your characters are easy to follow the visually it's pleasing visually. It's fun. The monsters are fun. There's crazy moments. There's funny moments. There's just a whole nice, really well put together, just good time at the movies package uh, in this film. 
like the rest of the MonsterVerse movies, I, I find it to be impeccably directed. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like you're right. I mean, I, I, I think that some of those other smaller things, or uh, not smaller things, but those other things about when you kind of get granular about the story and character, yeah, and, and I'll point those things out too. But from a director, from from a directing point of view, I do find it to be impeccably directed with its own unique vision, with a lot of interesting choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think when you really look at it, it really is more. Even though Jordan Vogt Roberts like wanted to go in a direction where he didn't want to have anything really all that reminiscent he doesn't mind like a little nod or like tipping the hat to something but he doesn't want to just make another just another iteration of the king kong story but he's able to make that type of movie in the same way that i thought that the 2014 godzilla movie really kind of nailed a lot at least like thematically and aesthetically and feeling wise of of the 54 film as much as it could like this film does a lot to modernize even though it takes place in the 70s the classic kong story of the going off to an exotic island where there's a bunch of creatures and what what does that feel like and how does that thematically fit into the time period and if i just if i may be frank about it does it in a way more satisfying way for me, to the point that this still remains my favorite Kong film. Oh, I think I think this is very much so the best Kong film, and 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 I I think it's really a testament to just the idea and the storytelling that what's really interesting about like taking Kong out of that traditional Beauty and the Beast 1930s story. Uh, even in the 70s version, which is, you know, modern day, like even taking it out of all of that, you still, I think, really capture what Kong is about mm-hmm. uh, and what sort of the basic idea of Kong is, what Kong as a character should mean and what Kong as a character should act like and feel like and be like. I think they still capture it's like still so directly a Kong film without any of the baggage of like, well, we have to be the Kong film. And I well, think that's really impressive. When you look back at the original Kong, it is an exotic tale of finding new lands and with some thematics of colonialism and, you know, and and, and all that kind of jazz. And there's been many writings justifiably uh, uh, analyzing that, celebrating that and criticizing that. Um or being critical of it, not criticizing it. Yeah. Um, and that's always been a part of the Kong tale. And in many ways, this film doesn't shy away from any of that. It's still all, all about, you know, man coming to this place where it's not meant to be. And what does that mean? And, you know, like man meddling and things and, and then and then geniusly tying in the Vietnam War, not only with the basic, you know, not inventing the wheel of like, oh, man brings war to this place that it doesn't understand, but then also how does that fit in with our own history of Vietnam? And it, it's just right. I mean, the it's... kind of stuff that, like, I, I believe that you're right, that it is one of the things that on that deeper level, on that thematic level, it just gets richer the more and more that you watch it. Yeah. I was going to, I was just about to mention that, like, I think sort of that 
a colonialism idea of the original is, is like almost perfect. It's like that's why the Vietnam era is so perfect for a Kong film because it's a very different but similar idea that like it's like we're going into a land and we're just you know trying to have our way with it right and we're mm. you know taking like you know we're you know it's more of a war aesthetic than maybe the original kind of colonialism aspects were but it still is like we're going to a foreign land and we're just kind of using it for our own purposes and our own sort of ideas and and like you know you know again meddling in, in affairs that maybe we don't necessarily need to or understand and i think it's it's very much like once you transition that into skull island in the kong world it's just very similar and you see that in the colonel packard character a lot and the way that the soldiers are kind of presented in the film well uh, and then and 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 to the into that entire point where i think this is a better modern day representation of a classic kong film you know, and, and I'll be honest, with the exception of two, just to lay it out on the table, 95% of the characters are are archetypes. Like, like you know, John Goodman plays the guy with the expedition. Uh, Tom Hiddleston plays the rugged, uh, like, you know, hero. Um, you know, they, they, they do a little bit of a twist on, a modern day twist on the lady character in it. Uh, and then, you know, and but you're left with like John C. Riley and um and uh and, and I should say all those characters, you know, I'm a I'm a person like I don't really care if the characters are archetypes. I'll acknowledge that. Like yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean it's like, you know, there's a lot of Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson waxing about things that I do not care about. Yeah. I'll be honest. Like I've watched the movie many times. But the reason it's good, or at least I'm at least entertained throughout the whole movie, because Jordanville Roberts casted the hell out of this film. Absolutely. Everybody brings star power to it. I do not care anything about Lieutenant Conrad at all. I don't. But I love Tom Hiddleston, mm-hmm. and I love watching him and stuff. So just the him. cast, the cast of the movie is just so insatiably likable. Yes, like every single one of them, every single one of them is like so easy to watch. Brings charisma, and you're right, star power, and each of them. And again, one of the criticisms of the movie is this movie has too many characters, and it's something that Vote Roberts has admitted himself that there's a yeah. lot of characters in this movie, but each of them still gets a moment, which I always really like. If you can give every character something memorable, some sort of moment, some sort of line that makes gives you something of an attachment to them, that's a success. Well, unless you're Jing Tian. <laughs> uh, f- fair, fair. Every time she shows up, I'm like, oh yeah, you're in the movie. <laughs> very fair, very fair. And and you know, and, and I'll be like, you know, I, I'm going to say this as, as tastefully as possible. She was... You know, she she was a legendary darling. She was in a lot of legendary films. Yes. Like, I think that's, you know, not... I mean, listen, it, it is what it is. I mean, that's probably why she was in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a much more fun role in Pacific Rim Uprising. So, like... And, and I believe in that other Matt Damon um, dragon... The, the Wall? The Wall, or The Great Wall, whatever. Uh, I think she has a fun role in that. But that is the one character where... I mean, there are a lot of characters and and it is to the point where sometimes a character speaks and shows up and you're like, oh, yeah, you're you're in this. I forgot. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But I will tell you one thing we, we, and I think one of the reasons we wanted to hesitate in calling the bit players is talk about something that ages like a fine wine. The more you watch this movie, pretty much all of the army guys. Yeah. You just, you just love them. They're, they're likable yeah. crew. They play off each other so well. Yeah. Like, you know, and you have the different factions of them and stuff like that. And they're not overbearingly army either, which I really also enjoy mm. that they're, no, you're one thing I really I noticed on this rewatch more so than I ever did is that sure on a grand scheme like you know characters are doing frustrating things all the time but it was a movie that avoided a lot of tropes that you think that would fall into. Mm-hmm. So for instance, getting into characters that are a little bit more fleshed out, the two fleshed out characters are um I would say are Samuel Jackson's Packard and um John C. Riley's character. Yes. Whose name is evading me at this point. Uh, Marlo. Marlo. Lieutenant Marlo. Those are the two kind of like, you know, characters that you can sink your teeth into, into this moment. And, 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 you know, and then Marlo is the likable comic relief, feels like, like a human being character in the film. And, and then you just love him like unconditionally. Yeah. But Packard, that's a very underappreciated Samuel Jackson role. I yes, think. I actually 100 percent agree. I think this is like again, Jackson is the one who's like again likes working, likes being in all these different movies, and you know he can be in like such a wide range of like quality of films and types of films, everything like that. But this movie, he's bringing his absolute Samuel L. Jackson A game to. Um, in terms of bringing, and, 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 and again, it's a marriage of the writing and like, you know, what the character on the page brings to the table, but it's also Jackson bringing that character to life and really showcasing sort of that, again, that Captain Ahab type obsession and sort of his, like, again, his unsatisfaction with the war in Vietnam and, and how it translates into oh. sort of his Kong stuff is is so good. But one of the one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up because as I was watching it, and I wanted to make really be careful as I was watching it to make sure that this stood, is that there were so many, there was one or two key moments where this character really could have gone into like the cliche villain mm-hmm. of the thing and he is the villain of the thing and he represents something bigger that the audience can identify with as being a bad thing but ultimately i felt like the movie avoided some pretty obvious things like this was a guy who sure maybe had some a chip on his shoulder about because you're right his whole care his whole his whole thing was like he's an army you know um he's like an army lifer essentially yeah he, he's a, he's a, he's an army lifer he's a, a lieutenant colonel who like is one of the we abandoned the war and what was it all for and he has a couple lines and he's like you, you kind of get the sense that this is a war that he's gonna win like you know that he's going to do that but you never lose sight of that he is a character who actually does have something of a code and has nothing but love for the rest of the like at no point does it it would have been so easy for this movie to like highlight that he's letting the people he loves die for this or oh he's gonna like shoot one of like these these innocent people and he always backs down from doing that so you know it was just one of those things as i was watching like i'm like they really spent some time to avoid any of those 
uh, cliche trappings of making him a villain to the point that like you could really like be like okay like i i kind of see where everybody's coming from i mean you know he he's losing his mind a little bit but i mean he always does kind of cement it on like well this giant ape did kill a bunch of my of my boys yes <laughs> and i was just like it, it really is like one of the best moments of this movie where he's like they so they they kill off toby kevill and they find out that they killed him off because the whole kind of part of the plot is like they're trying to find him and they're like well he's dead so we can't do anything it's like well and his whole thing is like we got to kill kong and they're like well kong, and then the line where he's like he's like kong he's like but kong didn't kill him and he's like he's like yeah but he killed these men <laughs> and i was like whoa <laughs> and, then, and you but you get it like mm -hmm. you get the character and yes on a grand scheme you don't agree with it because you know where it's gonna go but I found myself being like, fuck, I, 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 like, I, I, I can empathize with that, with that thought process. Like, yeah, and, and again, it's just, like he's, and you got to think he's like Vietnam. So he probably feels like he's lost so many other people mm -hmm. and they've already given that up. And now this thing kills a bunch of more guys that, you know, were under his command and, and sure, you know, the, you know, the the whole lesson about humanity is like you know we can't let things go and we destroy more than you know we create whatever and so there's a little bit of that but they never fail to uh mesh it with uh an understandable character motivation yeah and and i and, I, and it really is again like the performance of jackson too um especially when he has those stare downs with kong throughout the film mm -hmm. the, the the two of them uh, I, it's 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 great Jackson stuff. Um, and again, it's just like I mean, there's a reason that J J Jackson has had such a long activity in in film and has been involved in so many franchises. Like much like everybody else in this movie, he's extremely charismatic and he's extremely watchable. And that's what like he makes Colonel Packer like an extremely entertaining presence in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I didn't know if you wanted to say something about John C. Riley. I mean, so I to say other than excellent, there are times in life <laughs> where you question the existence of humanity. Just like everything we <laughs> fucked up over the years, and we're killing the planet, not yada yada yada. Humanity deserves to exist for the sole reason of John C. Riley. <laughs> like, legitimately, one of the best. I think one of the best performers to ever grace the big screen, just the amount of range that he has. Like you could put him in boogie nights and the aviator right alongside like Talladega nights and Step Brothers and Chicago and Kong skull Island. And I can't think of a John C. Riley role that he isn't one of the best parts of the movie. Like he is so much fun to watch he's hysterical he brings such a great energy to every single scene he's in and it's just such a unique like monster verse character it's such a unique giant monster movie character and it's such a just a, a it, it's just one of the best parts of the film like i don't know what else what else to say yeah, like i mean he's just he, he's just a lovable comic relief character but then also he his role in the film is really interesting because his backstory is that 
you know, he got stranded there after a dog fight with a um with another Japanese pilot during World War Two. Right. And they both crash landed on the uh on the island and then they were abandoned there and got stuck there. And then like part of the story is that they were fighting at the in and that's that's part of the insane prologue of the film the cold open which yeah, the, the, which the, has the insane cold open which you and i i think when we both when we both saw this movie for the first time we're like this is awesome <laughs> right. but that also has like the the famous story that roberts tells where his like original cold open yeah okay i i'm gonna save a little section for why i love vote roberts but why i think it's best that some of his instincts are reined in sometimes yeah. so i'll save that one but anyway, so that's like his story. So he's been on the island since World War Two, and um, and you know, and so you know, he plays a lot of like the the crazy guy who's been stuck on the island for all these years. But you just you love him so much, and everybody I think agree that they love this character to the point that like they went back and they shot the post the mid or the during credit scene of or it was a very late in the game edition i believe jordan jordan said where they um uh where the whole him coming back home which is i i mean i get that it's such a sweet moment like it makes me actually very emotional and i mean and, and it's a testament to the character's arc and how much you care for the character it which is, is like, funny because it's like it, it's not like it was his movie. No, he was just the love. But it's like I mean, liked. he he plays like the man on it. It's like the man out of time thing so well, right? But like, he's like, but not like even yeah, he has some questions about stuff about history and stuff like that. But like, and he's you know he has some moments where he's crazy, but he's also very knowledgeable about the island. Um, and again, it's just John C. Riley, so you immediately love the character. He has some of the movie's best lines. Um. East Which, is best, West is worse. East that's is best. We, West. That's why we always say it. Sounds like a sounds like a bird, but it's a giant fucking ant. <laughs> Which was in, I, improved. Improv, improv, yeah. yeah. It's the whole thing where he's just like, you gotta watch out for the ants, like in the like in the trees. Yeah. They're just like giant ants. It's like and then and you he, hear a bird in the background. And, it's yeah. like it just sounds like a bird, but it's a giant fucking ant. Uh yeah, East East is best, West is worst is a good one that's why and then he's like that's why that's why we always say i love it um and then there's the whole skull crawlers bit which was a little improv too which is, uh, about yeah. like, the reaction to it i remember it was interesting because and jordan vote roberts talks a lot about this in the movie too is that you know jordan vote roberts is one of those people who seems very willing to shift tones in a film yeah so you know that's right up my alley but like he's like one of these people where you know i remember he was taught he was doing an interview with somebody and then he was saying like you know that um that you know sometimes there can be some reservation about telling like the movie that he was doing but then having a john c Riley character in it now he likes that stuff yeah and then like the person kind of had had determined that as like oh like you know that was like a studio backlash thing but he was very honest he's like no actually like you know it's like audiences and fans like you know there seems to be this protection over you can't shift tones that that quickly and it is a thing in this movie like you know it is funny when that character shows up and you know there it's get it's time for the giggles <laughs> yeah. you know it's time for being silly a little bit and and but it's also funny when you really listen to jordan vote roberts talk about this movie like the things in the film that he finds funny mm -hmm. like it like 
the big Shea Wingham sacrifice at the end of the film, like the feudal sacrifice where you think he's going to like give himself up to be eaten by the monster and explode with the grenades in him, but then he just gets killed like yeah, with, a, with, with, a, with a tail swipe, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, you would see a lot of people being like, well, what's the point of that? And then Jordan wrote Robert, it's like, it's hilarious. <laughs> like he, like, you know, but again, yeah. And it's like kind of, again, dealing with the whole, like what a soldier is, but then like kind of the real, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's super fun stuff. But I mean, just again, just on, on Riley, just, like it's just every yeah he I mean he's among the people that he just steals every scene he's in but it's not even like stealing it's like you know he's going to do that mm-hmm. it's like it's like you left the bank vault door open because like you know the robber's coming it's like it's like you know John C Riley's just gonna like make himself so good in whatever he's doing and it's such a great reason to revisit this movie over and over again is just to see his character. Now this like, kind of this kind of takes us into like the plot of the film a little bit, but just overall, like, and I know we talked about it a little bit, but like, just kind of what are your overall kind of thoughts? And you can get into some of the plot too, just about the whole time period, because I feel like this is one of those films where I don't think I've ever been more attached to a movie taking place during a certain time, and than this movie is one it, of those times. Everything about it fits like a glove. And you said it's impeccably directed by Roberts to really fit the era. Obviously, you have a lot of various, like, obvious needle drops, but it works extremely well. Like, each one of them mm-hmm. just fits the movie so well. Again, we, talk, we just talked about the thematics, about connecting sort of what they're doing on Skull Island to the Vietnam War, and even, like, how it kind of runs into... Um, sort of how they're able to convince like the government to to finally let him on this mission all that sort of fun stuff um well and then like i just think that like this it 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 really the 70s end of the vietnam war aesthetic and time period it does just it fits the movie like a glove it's like you can't imagine this movie any other way and like telling the story and the way they tell the story it just it all works so well well, even outside of like the actual Vietnam War stuff, which I found interesting, and, and um, this was intentional by the filmmakers, is that you know there is this whole kind of theme about like during this time in the seventies, like satellites and satellite imagery was starting to be kind of become a thing, and we were just entering a new age, and then that was kind of like the inciting incident for even discovering uh, Skull Island mm-hmm. in the first place. So they kind of wrap that in and you can tell like even like um randa and like you know monarch are like well this is our time because like every you know we're entering a new era we got the satellite imagery everybody's kind of like like distracted by the end of this war thing like this is this is the only time we're going to be able uh to do it so just 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 like smart why just smart reasonings like i i think sometimes we can often like at like be too particular about well why this why that why does it take place here why is this happening now but like i just thought this was just a smart use of the time period that in a way makes you engage even more with the time period even more so than the movie Mm -hmm. i think yeah and it's funny because just one of the things that kind of just directly hit to my mind was like again that thematics of the 70s and the satellite imagery 
because I just realized that like having watched all these Kong movies, it's the exact same way they find the island in the 70s Kong. So it's like very much like even in the 70s, that was kind of like a the big thing, like when they were making the movie in that period. It's like, well, yeah, satellite imagery is how they find it. But you're very much right. And it's sort of like, again, sort of the, the race to find it and. You know, again, they, they're, they're like, well, you know, if we don't use the satellite imagery for good, then the Russians are going to, you know, do the same thing with their satellite, that sort of thing. Um, and as it, we know, Nick, there is there will never be a more messed up time in Hol- in, uh, in um, Washington. <laughs> one of the best lines in the movie. <laughs> one, of the, one of the best lines in the movie. Also, that whole sequence, like I want to start getting into the plot, but that also that whole sequence is great. So uh, just a back. I mean, you have I, if I. I to back up, I, I do want to talk about like kind of the cold open a little bit more specifically oh, yeah, 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 yeah. because the cold open to this movie is a hell of a way to start the film um, because you have this like, you know, the, the crash landing of, you know, this American World War II pilot, Japanese World War II pilot, like on, a, on some beach, right? And they both kind of survive. Somewhere and then it, over the Pacific. Somewhere over the Pacific. Yeah, yeah. I love the moment where, again, they realize they're both still alive and like there's like the like i think it's like marlo like the young marlo hits like the five gunshots or whatever and just misses all of them and then gunpei like looks at himself like oh shit like he didn't hit me at all like i just love and then just that pause but then they're like fighting through the jungle and it's just a great energetic opening i guess this would be you know i'll just say it right now this would be a good time to say what the alternative opening to the movie was at a certain point that vote Ro- vote Roberts basically pitched an idea where there was, which is interesting that he kept like that there was a war going on, but it was like a beachfront like army skirmish going on, and on this island that they ended up on, and then there was a huge roar from the uh, from the um, uh, from the trees, and then out comes a giant ape that looks like the ape from that, that looks like Kong from Peter Jackson's Kong, like a giant silverback comes abounded rushing to kill them. And then they just open fire and kill it. And they're like, Oh, all right, well, I guess that was easy. And then you're going to hear the roar of an even bigger monster, which was going to be our Kong. And, um, Joe and Roberts did admit that the studio immediately said, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. We're well, absolutely not doing that. And, and honestly, frankly, I, I, I think that may have been much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, but they made the right choice. Cause the ending of this opening is they're fighting like right on the edge of some cliff. Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. and like, you know, they're about the uh, gun is about to like stab Marlo in the neck and like win the battle. When all of a sudden you see a giant monkey hand come up and start climbing up. We get kind of the the hint of Kong. We don't see it fully, and then the big zoom in, uh, like onto their on Marlo's eye as we get to the opening credits. And, so, and it also fits better with like the theme that like Kong in the island is like not putting up with any of the bullshit of like and like the whole Titan thing is not putting up with the bullshit of humans and their wars, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a little microcosm of. Oh, these two soldiers are fighting, and then like, hey, okay, listen, I'm a giant, yeah, it, giant ape. Stop. I think one of the best things about revisiting these monsterverse films is really seeing how they all kind of connect. Yes. in those oh, ways, I got, right? I, I got, I have a bit, I have bigger thoughts about that, but, and yeah, and sort of thematically, and you're very much right that like Kong's relationship with 
those two fighting and the general humanity on the island is very much like the way that the titans of king of the monsters like you know that kind of aesthetic and, and sort of that theming of like they there there's bigger fish to fry than these petty wars and these petty fights that we have mm. i do want to mention that i still i mentioned this in the kong Agaza versus kong episode i really do like sort of the similar opening credit style to all these films oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I i love this one particularly where it kind of again goes through the history between world war ii and vietnam and all the different quotes from politicians and and scientists and stuff like that and jfk it's great we cut to washington where we get the line there will never be a more messed up time in washington i mean even in 2017 when they were 2016 when we were filming this they had no isn't idea it, isn't it hilarious though like no matter when you watch it, that line is still hilarious. Yes, because um, I mean, but- it was hilarious. Because he, it was even hilarious before even shit of that time hit the fan. You yes. know what I mean? Like, yes. So, and and vote Roberts had admitted that he's like it really wasn't a, a a cheeky reference to a modern day thing. It was just the notion of like that's I bet that's what everybody thought back mm-hmm. then. And yeah. So- uh, but we, we are introduced to John Goodman's character who is desperately trying many, many times to get a meeting with the senator uh, about Played by going, Richard Jenkins, by, by Richard Jenkins going to Skull Island. He, he does not get the message that the meeting's been rescheduled. And, you know, they basically do the walk and talk, um, which gets another one of the great lines of the movie, um, which is where Richard Jenkins is like, you're just like, you know. Like it's you're no different than the alien people or whatever. Like the the alien people, and then John Goodman's like, yeah, but those guys are nuts. <laughs> that's a, that's which a, is great too because again, within the larger monsterverse scale, we know that aliens do technically <laughs> exist. Which is the so bad good. guy of the next movie is going to be an alien, so. right? And there's like a lot of like I think and John Goodman is another one of those people where it's just like again he's in a lot of varying quality, but like he's again bringing sort of that great John Goodman sort of just game oh, yeah, here no, where he's he, he, like he, he's and especially at the beginning when he's like you know doing the walk and talk stuff where he's trying to like convince his partner and convince like rich jenkins about like this you know this idea and like you know we're just gonna walk in and, and do this eventually they you know you know are are, are... I, there's another great line in the film too where he's trying to explain skull island where there's like a bunch of disappearances and stuff he's like oh so what is it like the bermuda triangle and then he's like teasing them and it was like or is it like the tin hat i wear on the weekend and chunga is like it's a little bit more like the triangle than it is the hat yes <laughs> like you know he's like he's not taking it it's just like it is a little bit more yeah um but eventually yeah they do like convince jenkins that like hey like we'll just tag on to this like other operation that's going to be in that area. And, and, then yeah, all, and always, you know, blame it on the Russians. Like the Russians are going to get there first. The Russians will get there first. And if like, listen, their same satellites will go over that's there three how days. You got everything done during the cold war. Right. If you just said the Russians were going to get to it before you, then you can get it greenlit. Right. Exactly. Um, like you yeah. want a movie done. You want, like, you know, Guillermo del Toro's like, listen, the Russians are going to make Hellboy 3 before they're going to fund it. So, like, and then they're like, well, fuck, we got to, we got to give them the money. <laughs> I don't know if that, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that works anymore now, but I just like the idea of just like George Lucas going to Fox and Alan Ladd Jr. and being like, if, if we don't make Star Wars, then the Russians will. By what God, if that's the secret story behind why Fox eventually did fund it. 
<laughs> like that they were like he's like well we got some russian backers and it's like ah the commies <laughs> we'll take your weird space movie <laughs> so then uh you know goodman ends with the reveal that they're also going to need a military escort mm-hmm. and that's when we cut to initially our our friends from vietnam well, but no we're, the other plot point that we do that we would be remiss by missing is that there is a nod that like there's something else out there and then ultimately the reveal is like randa knew a little bit more about this but the implication was that there was a ship back in the 40s or 50s that got destroyed by something or no 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 i think in specifically in his case he was talking about in 54 there was this thing they were trying to kill it like they were they were it wasn't just a military operation they were trying to kill something oh i, I wonder what was going on in 1954 yeah. <laughs> and that time. but that was originally supposed to be a picture of godzilla mm-hmm. in the original like but they decided not to be so overt about it overt about it which is one of those kind of like you got to give legendary the credit for the world building they did is like not to be so tied down to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also, you know, again, they give the lip service of like, there might be fuels, there might be things and, and the, uh, you know, lip service to the hollow earth theory, you know, sort of that sort of stuff too. So there's a lot going on with, with the, you know, what they want to see skull Island about. But again, there's sort of a, they keep the mystery too of like what Goodman's actual, idea is of got going to skull island which i think is is kind of a fun little twist on everything and you know what's impressive about a lot of the opening of this film is because Mm -hmm. one of the challenges i think when you make a film like this especially a kong film or any sort of going to a monster island film but specifically a kong film is that you are somewhat fighting against the inevitable like listen we all know that this is all just the stuff we're getting out of the way before we get to the island. Right. And for my money, I feel like this movie jam packs it with a lot of kinetic energy, color, and momentum that it never feels obligatory or boring getting there. Yeah. No, I, I, again, I think it's a testament to the tone. I mean, again, it's like as obvious as some of the 70s needles drops are, that's a big part of it, too, is like when we get the sort of the Clarence Clue Auto revivals and the sort of Black Sabbath stuff, it's like it's all functioning in terms of the mood and tone and just the fun and the momentum going forward. And then you get like, right, because you get this fun opening with, uh, you know, the flashback to World War II, you get some funny lines in the ho- in the the Washington segment, and then you cut to the you know the 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 soldiers and like the the end of the vietnam war has just been announced and we're pulling out and everybody's on their last day and they're kind of like making fun of each other and you know how much do you love your mama like you know like you know what your mama only sent you like three letters like you must not love you that much and it's kind of like the fun little stuff you know and it's it's like you know all that sort of stuff is good and i I like it and it establishes these characters as just likable um and we were talking about, yeah, like Jackson kind of is reflecting on like, what is it? What is it all for? Um, and then later he very eagerly accepts another job because again, he's like a lifer and he's very much like, he doesn't want to end, you know, this chapter of his life just yet. That was, a, uh, that was another really interesting character moment because like he says, he gets the call that there's one last mission, but it's an escort mission. 
And yeah. there's a moment when I just think if you know movies, you think he's like, oh, man, we got to escort some scientists. But this guy is so eager to stay in the service and just do whatever yeah. for the military that he literally is like, thank you. We'll yes. take it. Like, it, yeah. I, I just thought that was such an interesting little character beat. And then we also are introduced to um, uh, Tom Hiddleston's character. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, it's like where where John Goodman uh, and his buddy, um, they are, you know, going into I believe it's uh, like Hong Kong or it, it might be somewhere I forget exactly where it is, uh, but you know, like a, a South Pacific Asian city, and they're talking about the you know the need for a tracker and and sort of the, this debate about like what what we're doing, uh, and and where we're. Uh, you know what we need a tracker for where we might be on the ground yada 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 like stuff that kind of comes up later too with with Brie Larson's character uh asking about it too but eventually they come across Tom Hiddleston uh who is playing the um James Conrad character former uh ex uh British special air service captain uh who's just, just kind of like you know person for hire and we are introduced to the first of Tom Hiddleston's like somewhat unnecessary, but still really cool badass moments in the movie where he's playing pool and the guy is like not going to pay and the other guy's going to kill him. And he immediately like beats up the two guys and like throws like pool balls at everybody. A lot of it reminds me of remember how they had to add like things in Jurassic World, like Chris Pratt catching a fly in midair. <laughs> Like they have to do yeah. some like weird superhuman things, so you know that they're like they're the guy. they're a badass. Though, I, if I remember correctly, either it was a reshoot or it was a last minute decision to do something like that whole bit with the pool cue. Yeah, because I think that they needed to plant something to somewhat justify the samurai sword later. Which we have, we'll talk about. We'll talk about. Okay, yeah. But, uh, but that but that's the reason that right. I mean just speaking it, of that scene, that's why it's kind of like that. And it, and it's like also a visual way of showcasing to like, you know, land. It's like that's our man. Um and of course Okay, like, can can I can I speak as Tom Hiddleston on a whole in this movie? Yes. So I was one of the other things I was super excited to go back and watch this movie on was because we just got finished watching Loki. Yes. Um, and, you know, really spending some time week to week in like a in a show like that. And it's interesting that he's just so good in terms of he just has star power and he and he's just good. He just a good actor can embrace the role in doing it. But there is a certain level where I'm like, I don't know if being this guy is where I like him the best. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think yeah. he's good and I'm glad he did it, but I don't know if being like the tough explorer mm-hmm. is necessarily my go-to for him. I think it works for this movie, but I don't think it's a role that I, th- and I, I think it's a role that works for this movie because of, again, the tone and the aesthetic and the type of movie it is that I think that he is able to get on by through this kind of role, just through his natural charisma. Yeah. But I also, oh, yeah, I agree. I don't 100%. think that this is a role where it's like, if this were another movie where he was playing this type of character, like, I don't think 
it would necessarily work. But I think that again, there's a, that just Hiddleston just has a natural like likability, watchability that it's just fun to kind of watch him just kind of run around. Like honestly, oh, yeah. I enjoy I enjoy it quite 100%. a bit. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's it's not a knock on his performance at all. It's just yeah. you know, it's just funny after. But a, I think you're about I, a month of watching him as Loki. I think there is an really element of him, though. You're right that like the more theatrical the role is, I think the yeah. more that like he really it, it like fits it. He fits. Mm-hmm. He just fits something like the theatrical like, nature of Loki. Whereas, like again, like I think there is enough of a theatricality just inherent within this film that makes his character shine a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's just like if you were playing this in a more like if this was more like Jackson's Kong, I think you could kind of see where that, some be, issues, that being said, issues would can, come up. You can tell if you just know Tom Hiddleston and how he approaches roles that he's really leaning into just having fun with being that guy. Yes, no, like, like he gives it his all sitting, when he's just sitting there and he's like, he's like, well, you haven't even thought about like the rain and like the the torrential storms and the dangerous environment. Not to mention the things that are going to kill you on the way. So. Uh, I'm going to ask for double and then even more when we make it back. Like you can just tell he's yes. sinking his teeth. He, he, no, that. he wants to play this role. Yeah. <laughs> like, again, like I said, like he enjoys playing these types of yeah, yeah, yeah. roles. And he enjoys playing in these types of movies. And just like the whole question of this, like, like, you know, what do you, what are you after? Like, what are you looking for? Uh, and then finally, you know, our, our kind of last main piece of the puzzle, I would say is Brie Larson's uh, photography character who uh has been deep in the shit in vietnam for a long time being a you know pulitzer name pulitzer prize winning you know uh photojournalist up for the cover of time magazine um when she gets the call where it's like hey like you know that ship is leaving for that that science expedition like at the, from this dock on this day and it's you like know, with, with like jur- photojournalists and other journalists like you know they always have to put in one a pulitzer is is up for the cover of time it's never that oh they're just good and their resume is great it's always that they were always on time <laughs> on time magazine you know what i yeah. mean like they always have to add that in yeah but that's the question of like why do you want to go on the science exposition when you're up for the cover of time uh-huh, yeah, and it's yeah. and it's just like you know what when 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 three sources tell you the exact same thing word for word, you know they're all lying. Will, mm-hmm. which is a good, you know, good to the good to know. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I think Brie Larson's fine in this movie. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's. it's... I mean, she kind of falls into the Tom Hiddleston thing, uh, quite frankly. I mean, mm-hmm. like the star power is enough and keeps her. Yeah, and, and, and again, it's like it's also not as if like her her character. Even even more so than Hiddleston's, really doesn't get that much of a like thing, I guess, in the movie. Like in terms of like, well, again- but no, I, I, it's hard because like, it's just like this is one of those things when you hear Vote Roberts talk about the film. Like he takes a lot of like pride in her role in the film. Like I mean, you know, she is one of those characters where you know she is kind of the heart in the sense of like she's this journalist and. You know, she is kind of like the in in on these scenes where you're taking pictures and she fits into that role. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just similar in, in the sense that, you know, it is an archetypal role is all. It yeah. Is. I mean, and again, she she embraces that in many yeah. ways. And yeah, she 100 percent. Also, you could tell, like, there's definitely points where she's having a lot of fun, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, Given a lot of wide eyed expressions. 
uh, throughout the film, um, but also having fun with the photography aspect and like there's which was some... real. She took real photography lessons, and Joan Vogt Roberts had insisted that she actually had a real camera. And one of the uh, special features on the DVD is a slideshow of all the pictures she took. I'm happy. I'm happy for her. Um, and I, and I think it's like it's fun to see. I, I do like Brie Larson quite a bit, and I think again, just like the other actors in this movie is that there's, there's just a nice likable watchable quality that like elevates the role in and of itself. And I think that the, again, Gina might not get a lot in terms of like true emotional stuff, but I even think that again, like it's nice that they don't go full on the Kong blonde woman love story, but I do like that. They still give those two characters somewhat of a connection oh, yeah. at certain mm-hmm. points in the film. I think that again, it was kind of tastefully that's the put tasteful in there. tipping of the hat that I yeah. think he's good at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and all their characters are together. And then yeah, I, I think like also you have a good scene between, you know, Packard and, um, you know, Brie Larson as they're entering the ship where it's just like, you know, Hey, like a lot of your, a lot of your pictures lost us support. And it's like, are you really blaming us? For... Well, yeah, well, that's where it becomes like more thematically yeah. interesting. Right. And it's like, we didn't, we didn't lose the war. We abandoned it. And this mm-hmm. is kind of like, you know, we're, they, we, they both know they don't like each other very much, but they're kind of on this position. Um, uh, but they're, but they, we get to, you know, uh, the real trek to Skull Island. Um, and I think a lot of stuff as you enter this part of the film you immediately get the like some of the good stuff really coming in um where it's like again like you have like again more stuff between the soldiers as they're like you know we were about to go home and you know it's like do you even have a bed like you have a bed right just like some the little moments like that is like are fun but we get to skull island and there's the big storm around it which again i also felt was really fun because it connects to like even the 70s Kong had that big fog around it. I thought that was really kind of interesting how this connected. But there's the whole debate where it's like, oh, I was going to say before that, we have the big presentation in the room with the slideshow. And I was like, even that's like right right alongside the 70s Kong where they were doing the, the slideshow, the, the satellite images, and here's our mission, and here's what we're doing here. So just like kind of a weird, like, as much as it's like not really influenced by those Kong films, I like I think it's funny that the 70s Kong film does feel very similar in many ways to like that actual seventies Kong film. But anyways, um, we have some fun stuff with like all the different sections of like um, the people in the room, like, you know, the, the soldiers having fun uh, and, and, and they, and they start to plant the seeds that, you know, they're down to do it, but you know, there is a little bit like, man, we were about to go home. Like, right. you know, yeah. So there's a, they're planting that seed a little bit. I like the um, line where it's like, we're scientists now, boys. You, yeah. you're not, you guys are not scientists. Like, very, there's... I don't, okay. I don't love that character. I like that line. I don't like that character a whole I, bit. I, that I, is I, one of those, like, does this character really need to be here? I think it's one of the ones where it's like, I think, like, there are, like, fun moments. I think that moment's kind of fun and, like, you yeah. can see where it goes, but then they really don't give him anything to do on the island either. And it's no, like, he really yeah. only has, like, one other two lines he's like, you not could... bad and i like that actor and other things i think he's yeah. fun in the good place and like he, yeah he's fun like... the good place in brooklyn 99 for yeah. sure no he's good i it's just but again like yeah but it's one of the most extreme him and it's... like two other characters are like okay too many it's too many characters. but eventually we get to them debating about the storm and like we have to abandon and again it's a great moment where it's like you know john goodman wants to go obviously 
The other guy is like, you know, this is not worth it. And it's like, Colonel Packard, you can get us through it. Let you break the tie. And again, it's that moment where like Packard is just like, he wants to do it so badly that like, you know, he's going to, well, and they also have experience doing it. That's what like, that he has experience doing it with weather, but it's like, I just like the moment where he looks and you can tell, like, I really want to see what's on the other side. I want to just be they, involved in this. Like, also, I think it's like really well also, done. They also make a real, they also make a good point of pointing out that he is the guy who's going to be flying and taking point on the mission. And you just buy the fact that like, despite the other guys thinking like, uh, I don't know about this, but it's like, Hey, but like, you know, the, you know, our bot, you know, our leader is doing this yeah, and he's the one sticking his neck out uh, like as well. So we can trust him. Mm-hmm. And that whole, and story- in, you get the camaraderie between everybody, including like Jackson and his boys. Like there's the true kind of camaraderie that they've been involved with each other for so long that there is that inherent trust, especially at the beginning. One of the things I liked about that whole storm sequence was a, it does a couple different things. It shows that this military um, unit is co- is uh, is competent. Like they mm-hmm. know how to do this. They can get through this. A, it shows the camaraderie with them because he gives that amazing Icarus speech about like you know it's like oh like you know the the story of Icarus is like he flew too close to the sun, but it's like but we don't have wax wings. We got Philadelphia steel. Like just a great. Yeah line but one thing i actually noticed this was like the absolute mind-blowing new thing i learned about during this rewatch is that so he gives this whole speech about the story of icarus and for anybody who knows the story of icarus is more of a tale of hubris right like yes. it's more of like don't fly too close to the sun because your wings will melt and then you'll be but Sam, but Packard's lesson in that is that if you notice, he says like you know he tells the whole story. He flew too close to some because his wing because his father made wings made out of wax. But and then but his takeaway to the story, it's like, but our father is like, but our father wasn't an irresponsible person who made wax wings. Our father was the USA that gave us tight like Philadelphia steel. So it was just like a little funny character moment that his takeaway of the story of Icarus is that not that it was a story of hubris, but that the father was irresponsible <laughs> in right. giving him the proper way. And I thought, and that, that, and, that, that, and like, that inherent belief, again, relating to Vietnam, that inherent belief that like the U S of a is the best. And like that other people kind of like let you down and not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yes, and, yeah. And it was the one little thing that I was like, good good piece of writing right yes there. very good so, sometimes you never quite know what exactly is the writing that is one of those a plus yeah I, I like that a lot uh eventually make it through the storm though and they come across on the other side this gorgeous piece of land known as skull island um which i think the 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 locations are great in this movie um and, and just showcasing sort of it's like familiar, but also looks so different and exotic. It reminds me a lot of how, you know, for like when they did like shooting in, in like Vietnam for Bond for like Man with the Golden Gun, it was like, hey, it's like kind of this not really looked at part of the world. And we can kind of use the aesthetic and, and the different, you know, jungles and, and stuff to like really pop the eye. And I, I feel like there's a means of like the way that they shoot a lot of the island stuff really sort of it's familiar but also so unique and different at the same time 
uh, that I really think it like makes Skull Island. I mean, this is the best version of Skull Island in any of these movies, a hundred percent. And I think just sort of the way that it looks, first of all, I think really adds to that. Yeah, especially after coming off of Jackson's Kong, which no shade to that one at all. Yeah. This is just like a more, and, and what I like about it, it was that it's a very interesting, unique ecosystem because it obviously it's got more a more vibrant, colorful look to it, but it's also an island where, like one of like the interesting things that I think worked for the movie, but I was a little bit critical of is like, it was just like like the Jackson Skull Island was just always teeming with bugs and every single thing was there to kill you. And I think that that worked for what they were going with in the film. Okay. But like this was like, you kind of like didn't see wildlife and, and like, you know, it, for instance, if you go out in the world, you just don't see wildlife every single second. Like, you know, no, sometimes no. like you'll come across like a deer. And mm-hmm. the fact that this was a world with deer and regular birds, but then also you can come across a weird Miyazaki moose. Like, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or that, like, you can come across these, like, death birds. Like, it was like, it, you're right. It was just a And more, giant, giant fucking spiders. Yeah, yeah. And then, or, or, or giant fucking ants. Like, you, know, yeah. you can. So I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think it is a very um, interesting way. And really the only... Um, hint at dinosaurs was a triceratops skull Mm -hmm. which i thought was interesting like that that made it in there but yeah i know i completely agree with you yep and uh and and just like you know and what i also like about the way that they build up this film is i think you're you know the first creatures we see are kind of the more regular types right the more we we see the deer on the ground, we see kind of the birds flying in the air. The so it's very right, dragonflies and stuff. So we kind of see like at, at, we see it from their perspective, where it's like it, as if it's like kind of a normal island. Mm-hmm. And so then when they experience Kong, finally, it's such a shock to the system and such a different thing that we've seen it all throughout this movie and just our brief time on the island it's just a really nice way of building up to that moment especially with the actual not just that in terms of the aesthetic and the way that the island is presented but also the actual scene where again they're playing the big boom box with the big 70s guitar and and the big 70s sound okay they're they're dropping these charges I, i tried to do some research and if that would work if that works by putting a vinyl record on a helicopter and I couldn't find it, but I was just, I was, I thought that was some artistic license. Like if that would work, mm-hmm. but Hey, it's, you're it's a helicopter. It's like, it's, it's fucking like, you know, you're in the air. It's rumbling around without it's, even, work? it's cool though. Oh, it's, it's awesome. I love it. But, but again, it's just like the, again, the aesthetic and this, and this is where, again, the seventies era really lends itself to this because just the sound and the music is just so, again, I, iconic is the word, but it just so fits like sort of this, um, you know, where they're dropping charges and they're just blowing up shit and you just see big explosions. And it's like all these, all these American soldiers and scientists having the time of their lives just blowing up this innocent island and like, hey, it is hollow down there. It's great. And then out of nowhere, giant monkey hand again, once again, 
swats down a helicopter. We get that first person shot and we are introduced to Kong. And we are also introduced to the wonderful uh, Skull Island Sun. Yeah, the the Skull Island Sun, it's wherever the shot looks coolest. Yes. (laughs) The sun in this movie and the moon, to be fair, make no sense over the course of the film. Not at all. And it's like one of those, like, so there's the big money shot where all the helicopters are in front and the camera pans up. And it's like sunrise. It's got to be sunrise if we're going to give it some credit. But it's like, you know, the, the, the sun is just like, basically silhouetting kong at at like kind of like a like an orange hour or whatever and then like in in the rest of the scene it's in the middle of the fucking sky it's like yeah it's just like a normal sun i love it and i would have it no other way oh no no it's it's amazing it looks (laughs) it looks cool as hell and this whole early sequence of kong and them it, it it's like kind of like really well emphasizes the terrifyingness of it while also making it super awesome of just like Kong just swatting these helicopters. Nobody knows what's going on. One of the things I noticed on this time was like, there's a lot of really fun details with Kong's reaction throughout the scene. Mm-hmm. Like there's one time where like, like basically he kind of like a helicopter, like basically like runs into his arm and he like looks like incredulously at like the kind of like blood. He's like, what the hell? Like, what the hell is this? Like, what do you, what was that? Like, there's some really fun little moments where Kong is like looking directly at like the helicopters and just like trying to just swat them down. There's, there's a lot of really fun, like Kong animation and Kong motion capture in this first scene. And it's, mm-hmm. it's such a good, in terms of like how that first cold open teases Kong super well, this is a really good introduction to this Kong. And like what makes this Kong so big and unique. And I like it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I mean, this is the scene of the film, right? It's the big him taking down the, it was the one that they sold in all the trailers. And, and you know, what's funny about it is like, it was the big trailer scene that was kind of mined in all the marketing. Mm -hmm. And then when we ended up seeing it, it completely delivered. Yeah. It was like the, Oh, absolutely. It's such, again, a fun, sequence and again i think robert shoots it well with some of the first person stuff the different reactions all the soldiers panicking the do you love your mama do you love your mama and brie larson being like what the fuck's going on here like everybody is like top and form. then of course the classic is that a monkey <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the classic line yeah um and then it basically like it turns out that everybody's sort of separated a lot of people die in this sequence a lot of the uh, soldiers uh, the the bittier bit player soldiers die in this sequence but we kind of have we really do have like kind of three camps coming out of this tony kebbell's character lands very far away and is on his own um samuel jackson kind of gets across most of the rest of his alive men also comes across uh landa john goodman's character at some point and then tom hiddleston brie larson and like the young the youngest soldier uh are all kind of on and the other scientists are all on their kind of path together too. So we kind of get these kind of differing little plot lines uh, throughout the film. Uh, so basically, you know, to start with Sam Jackson stuff, you know, he eventually kind of makes come some contact with Kebble, Kebble's character. And they're kind of trying to figure out like, okay, what's the plan? We have the downed uh, sea snake or whatever, like has enough um, ammunition to blow this monkey up. So let's go find that ammunition Eventually, you know, Jackson, sorry, yeah, 
I, I was thinking Peter Jackson, but Sam Jackson. Uh, eventually, they come across Landa and John Goodman, and then they have they have a confrontation of Jackson and Goodman, basically discussing the truth of of what what this is all about. Uh, where we get uh, the truth, where Jackson pulls a gun on John Goodman, and being like, "You're going to tell me everything I don't know," and Goodman's basically like, "You know." Did you ever hear about this ship? No, you didn't because it was attacked by a giant monster and I was the only survivor. And from that day on, I knew that we we weren't in charge of this world, that these monsters were the ones, you know, that were the true rulers of the planet. And at some point, if we don't confront them, they are going to take over, which is such a cool sort of, prelude to king of the monsters like i can't say it any other way where it's like watching it this time i was like oh my like john goodman's character is a hundred percent right and that is exactly what ends up happening on this version of earth the monsters do take over so two things about this i'm glad you brought this up is that one is that so i i carefully i try to go back into this and the fan consensus, it doesn't seem to be confirmed either way or the other, is that the creature that sunk the USS Lawton was Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Like, there there doesn't seem to be any other thing to discredit that, and that's yeah. just kind of what the fan consensus is. But this is kind of like the more explicit, retroactive, like, thematic thing that, you know, I'm obsessed with is like where this fits in into the whole kind of like ethos and like thought of the of the monster verse is that you're right exactly what you said is that like a lot of this movie is about like if the first Godzilla movie 2014 was about like humanity kind of like finding its place that we're just kind of like essentially like ants in this bigger world and we're being introduced to that that this movie is a lot about like okay well what happens if we try to be interventionist about that like Mm -hmm. you know what if like humanity tries to fight back and there's a lot of that and to your point like you know that is the thesis statement that at least randa is going for he's like well we got to do something about it uh, entirely he may not be as gung-ho about it as packard is but he's definitely like a guy like okay well we gotta we gotta stand up to this because eventually like they are going to take back this planet and then you're absolutely right it's the king of the monsters is that is the whole thesis of that movie is like okay well now that's this is just what's gonna happen and, and again it's like first of all i want to say i've been calling him landa the whole time which is just me being stupid <laughs> i didn't even notice well it's funny because it makes me immediately think of that simpsons episode where it's just like wait a minute Art's teacher is named Krabappel? I've been calling her Crandall. Why didn't someone tell me? Oh, I've been making an idiot out of myself. One of the best lines of the, <laughs> the, best lines of the series. But, Randa... Um, but yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, I got but it. But I just think it's like, especially within it being a cinematic universe, like, I think what's fun about the... Um, monster versus i think there is a lot of sort of again this kind of really cool connection without being explicit connections where it's not it isn't like they're showing a picture of godzilla like i was attacked by this giant lizard with atomic breath like they aren't saying that but they are sort of again sort of like yeah like there are this kind of like overarching thing and like you know where it's like 
I, I just find it funny that Randa has this, her, his instinct is, well, we got to kill these things before they kill us. And then once we get to King of the Monsters, the whole sort of antagonistic view well, of that no, movie. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, sorry to interrupt, but it's not necessarily kill us, but reclaim the planet. Right, the yeah. yeah. But then, like, but yes, you're correct. It's like before they, like, reclaim the planet. But then once we get to King of the Monsters, and it's like, you know, Vera Farmiga's whole thing is the exact opposite, where it's like, no, we need to let these creatures reclaim the planet. Like, that is the only avenue for our salvation is for them to actually you know, reclaim it as their own. And I think it's just a very interesting dynamic between like even just those two characters where it's like intentional, not intentional. It just makes the MonsterVerse as a whole package when you consider the four films that we have such an interesting collection of movies in terms of their thematics and how they connect with each other. And I think that's really what makes the MonsterVerse such a great cinematic universe and it really is like the second best cinematic universe to me outside the MCU. And I think it's the only one that's had any form of true success. And it's because I think that these films so interestingly connect one to the other without also feeling like direct sequels to the others. I couldn't have said it better myself. It's just, it's super interesting. I love it a lot. Um, then. Well, and, and because like the only thing I'd added to that, because it's like, you know, and then it's like, you know, they're, you know, sometimes you can get called out for like retroactively like adding things, but you know, but that is part of the fun of the franchise is that it works with the other movies coming out. Like, yeah. you know, you don't feel like it has cheated the other movies. Like, you know, am I saying that they had planned that out necessarily? No, that's not why I like it. I'm just saying that in retrospect as a franchise, it all fits together. And it, and it just shows that even if they're not necessarily planning things out, that there is sort of like, the creators and legendary do have sort of there is a shared the same, the same shit is on their mind right like, it's it's yeah. it's a it's a shared passion and a love for what yeah. these mov movies are about i agree um i think also around this time we get it's funny that you mentioned because i didn't even realize the whole icarus thing from earlier of like it's like a messed up way of of show showcasing that story mm -hmm. then we also get the messed up way of showcasing the story of the lion the the mouse and the thorn yeah. Which I thought was, again, a fun scene where it's like, no, like the, the story ends with the mouse killing the lion with the thorn. Yeah. Who told you that? My mama. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It <laughs> explains a lot. So we and have I, them. And I, and I love it because, like, they maintain a level of innocence with all of those characters. Yeah. That, again, like, it was, it would just be so easy for all of these characters to be cliched army guys who are just going to be killers yeah but they don't go that direction they just go with their like especially at that time like it was probably just younger guys i mean obviously not shea wingham but like it's like yeah. it's like but like most of them were just like you know just guys just yeah. dudes who probably you know they're going to you know do their duty but they did want to go home so i, I for, before we move on from that scene i also almost forgot one of the best uh uh shea wingham moments in the movie when they're like, you know, he's just eating and he's like, how can you eat at a lot of time like this? Like, we just saw a giant monkey. Like, what, what, what are you doing? It's like, well, you got to eat. Like, I'm hungry. Like, and it's like, are we not going to talk about like what just happened? That was an unconventional encounter. Um, 
you know, it was unprecedented. There's, there's no, no pre- precedent for that. <laughs> there's no precedent for that. We did the best we could given the given the situation we were we had. Yeah. It's it's just yeah. super fun and and a great way of just showcasing like yeah, like it was weird and we're like let, that's the way we're going to talk about it. Uh, Tony Kevill's doing his own thing. You know, he's talking. He's thinking about his son Billy. You know, and then you know all that sort of stuff. Also, around this time, there's also uh, our Sam Jackson crew gets attacked by a giant spider. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a fun sequence too. I think all the monster stuff in this movie is pretty fun. Really fun um, sequence. Uh, uh, having it be its legs are um, are um, camouflaged in with the bamboo sticks is really. That's fun. another thing about the monster design in this movie. I really enjoy how basically everything on the island has like a camouflage mode. Like I think it really showcases sort of the the sort of again this sort of bottled environment that it really is survival of the fittest and one of the ways you can survive in a survival of the fittest is to blend in with your surroundings and basically almost everything in the movie can blend in with its surroundings and it's super interesting um yeah so tony kebble is on his own journey and i guess this one of the main significant parts of his is we do get to see kong butt for a little bit um as well as kong's sort of just natural living life. Yeah, like the day in the life of Kong. Day in the life of Kong, you know, he has the... No, the... You're, uh, you're bearing the lead. He fights a giant octopus. Right, well, no, but I'm just going to say, like, it's a nice lead-up where he's walking through all nude with his Kong butt, and then he, like, has the little blood on his arm, and he's, like, you know, kind of washing it off, and he's drinking the water, but then he immediately, like, notices something in the water, and he just kind of reaches in and starts fighting this giant octopus, which, again, is just for the small moment that it is, is super fun to watch. And, again, like like we talked about, it, even in the original, like, a review of it that we did in the original episode, we talked about how it has its connection to... King Kong versus Godzilla, where he fights the giant squid in that movie, the giant octopus. And it's just like a nice sequence where he like basically like has his dinner for the night. And he like, I like the moment right at the end where he like kills the octopus and he's like, he take he like one of the arms like ripped off. So he like has that in one, he's like kind of has it in his mouth or whatever. And then he's trying to like drag the rest of the octopus behind him, but it's kind of like stuck in the water. And he's just the moment where Kong just like, come on, like get out of there. That's great. Yeah, so Tony Kebbell's doing his own thing. And then with Hiddleston, Larson, and the rest of the crew that they have, that's when they come across the this version, this movie's version of the Island Natives, um, as well as John C. Riley's character. Uh, the Natives were tastefully enough done. You know, I think that they're sort of like... Un- so, uh- I got I to gotta admit this. This was the only thing that I was a little bit more critical of in this view. Yeah, I think... There's no real good way to do these characters, I feel like, but I I just did appreciate that they're not they're not the savage type, which I think is like every other Kong movie does. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, listen, like they, I just they appreciate are the that, best that they, version of it. Yeah. It's like they they still like they're still presented as just like regular old natives of the island, which is just super nice. Um, although I did, I guess, find out that Brie Larson played one of them, which I think is kind of weird in retrospect, but. What? Apparently, like she is one of like the they dressed her up as one of the background ones, one of the background natives. Uh, that must, maybe that's just for behind the scenes. I don't know if that's like an actual thing in the movie. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, I, I, I think it's just like one of the things where I think she had like one shot yeah, or something. Uh, I mean, so here's my thing. I agree with you that I think that it's probably like the best version of them that we've seen. 
for all the obvious reasons. Um, and I think it's the most interesting, definitely. I found myself still being kind of like in this thing where I get what they're going for, that they're kind of like these monk-like figures that are like they and they hammer home that like they're beyond war and borders and they don't own personal property like they're just so they're just so above everything that humanity is doing in the outside war by the way i did love the line about like when marlo's like did we win the war and then they're like which one and he's like that makes sense yes <laughs> that was a good line but anyway so yeah so i i get what they're going for and then they're like and they're so above it all they don't even speak they're they're just like they're just so primal in that way and they just love it and listen and i think it's the better way i think it's much better than what we've seen in other kong films but like it did. I, I just found myself being. This is the most critical I'll be about the movie, actually, and I'm I'm a little bit surprised because I didn't know until I watched this it, this time that like, yeah, but would it kill you just to make like an actual society of people where they're all real people? Yeah, like because like I was thinking about like when we see what's her name, the little girl Gia in uh, in um, Godzilla versus Kong. Like, at least that feels like an actual kind of little girl yes. that would exist. Like, yeah. Like, and like, I get that you don't want to fetishize the whole island native thing, but you still kind of, it, it's kind of like that good intentioned, but still kind of weird. Right. Like, no, 100 Natives are just so amazing that they're not even human like you know what i mean yeah. they don't even age like so I, are you following you no no no. i think it's yeah. one of those things where again the instinct is to like not do too much with them because you don't want to again like fetishize or be too close to being like weird about it but i think it's one of those situations where you probably could do a little bit more or just not have them, and then, you know, and then, really at all. And, and then for me, like the only kind of suspension of disbelief is like, then you start like, then it's like, well, how do you buy that this guy has lived with these people mm -hmm. for, like since World War II? That was the, again, like I found myself, that was the only part of the film that I was a little bit more critical of this time around. Because I'm like, I, I get what you're going for, but just make these real people yeah <laughs> yeah like um, natives are real people with their no no they, they no it's it's answer. like yeah and it's like we we know that these again like again these societies are based off of real societies but these societies do have again real people real issues real personalities so to make them sort of like they are very much like kind of them hiding in the background they are kind of almost background stuff it's just kind of a another right, aesthetic right, for the yeah. island it, well, but but it's like i i like the idea mm -hmm. that it's this kind of like group of people who have kind of been there and lost in time and they've secluded themselves in the middle of this island and they see god like kong as their god and so i mean you know in principle i don't mind the idea and i still think it's the better version of it but i found myself for those reasons being a little bit more critical of it this time around mm -hmm. i agree I agree. Uh, but we still get some really good uh, back, background lore for Kong around the sequence. Again, perfectly executed in, in tone by John C. Riley, where Kong, we kind of figure out that Kong is truly, you know, the king of this island and sort of the 
Um, Kong is king to the people. He's a god to them because he's turned out he started protecting them from the other creatures, specifically the skull crawlers, which I like. Again, we, we talked about a little bit, but the moment where, you know, he they call him Kong and like, you know, the skull crawlers killed his parents, but it's like they don't even speak of these like devils from the underground or whatever. It's like I call them skull crawlers. Why? Because sounded cool. Oh, OK, I mean, uh, you can call them whatever you want. Uh, I uh, now that I say it out loud. It, it's kind of stupid sounding. No, 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 no. Skull crawlers is fine. Like, that's a fun little moment right right through that. The um, o- originally Jordan vote Roberts wanted to call the skull crawlers MacArthur. <laughs> Only because, like, again, it's one of those little Jordan vote Robertisms where he just liked calling like a like an animal, like a regular name. Well, I mean, but I'm assuming it's like based on like General MacArthur. From oh no, the, no, but yeah, he just yeah. liked the notion. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool also, I do like the aesthetic of the rocks and like moving past them and seeing like the different yeah, that depictions. Was cool. like that was that super cool. Uh, um, we get kind of like uh some other stuff here where, you know, Brie Larson like tries to like save the weird giant water buffalo thing and then finally sees kong kind of save him and kind of realizes yeah he's protector um the boat uh the uh the gray fox um <laughs> uh i'm nothing to say but other than like we'll, we'll, we'll explain the laughter of that one at the end yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but they they kind of fix up the boat uh with this idea that the the only way they're going to get off this island is the whole plan was there's a refuel team heading to the north side of the island in three days um, that's supposed to pick them up and and get them back to the boat and if they miss their rendezvous then they are also stuck on the island like Marlow so the only way to get up to the north side of the island is by this boat that Marlow started building with Gunpei who we find out after their experience with Kong the two of them had become great friends um, only for uh, you know, Gunpei to be killed by a skull crawler sometime down the road. Um, so this is kind of like the plot lines start to kind of coalesce among each other. Um, Tony Cavill eventually gets killed by a skull crawler um, after finding a giant uh, tree trunk uh, mantis, which I thought was fun too. Again, just another fun design of like the uh the the camouflage of the island yeah i i think your point about how the the there's so much camouflage in the nature of all of the creatures is a very astute point it was something i actually always appreciated but never quite analyzed it in mm-hmm. that way yeah uh so eventually they're kind of all doing their own treks through the jungle eventually tom hiddleston's crew and sam jackson's crew get back together um, and their again, their big plan is like, hey, we're gonna go find Tony Kevill. We're gonna go get all these big explosives, and we're gonna kill Kong. Um, but the, but basically, it's also at this point, Jackson's like, you know, hey, we're just gonna go find Kevill, and then he has like all the explosives, and and Hiddleston's more like, okay, we well, still have a man out there. We're not gonna leave him behind. Um, you know, hashtag East is best, West is worse. Um, as we get to uh sort of this the mass grave of kong's parents um and this whole sequence of the film uh with the skull crawlers with the kind of big introduction of the the big skull crawler action sequence well it's interesting because 
like whereas the helicopter sequence was really kong sequence this was like the big skull crawler sequence yes um it's interesting to note because one of the i i mentioned earlier that there was a lot of like some things that the studio did push back on jordan vote roberts on was there's very little monster fighting in this film and well i should say it this way he had to be talked into doing the final big monster battle at mm-hmm. the end between the two. And the one little bit with Kong and the two skull crawlers during the John C. Riley uh, bit was added very late in the game. So the only reason I bring that up is because without all that, you were kind of looking at a movie that just kind of had these little set pieces mm-hmm. where it's like there was the big Kong set piece and then you have this skull crawler set piece. Um, so that's just kind of like an interesting aspect of the making of the movie that I always found interesting. Yeah. Um, but talking about this skull crawler set piece, I kind of related to like the skull crawlers are kind of like the modern day raptors from Jurassic park one, like just that energy, just that kind of like visceral, something is hunting us energy. Um, is very prev is very present in this sequence, and I think as we talked about that, that's what kind of makes the scroll crawlers among the most interesting modern monster movie creations, is not just the look of them, but the way that they function as sort of these these raptor sort of you're right the raptor energy from Jurassic Park one where there's this nice like creepiness to them that also indicates that they're good hunters and good fighters and as like john c Riley said it's like you know like if you like basically like if you if there was no kong these things would be all over the place like they're just the only reason that they're not like killing everything on the island is that kong is there to kind of beat them up and and the other thing too is that especially in a kaiju franchise it, there is a lot of value into having creatures that are a little bit more um, intimate with the human mm-hmm. characters and size. Yes. So that that helps out a lot, too. It does. It does. So basically, they're kind of going through this kind of very gaseous pit uh, with like kind of these these skulls of like, you know, Kong's parents and, and other creatures throughout, throughout the way. We kind of find that the gas is, you know, somewhat, you know flammable in, in some ways or, or you know it's a it's it's a very different environment than what they've experienced uh john goodman is now taking pictures himself and his flash keeps going off poorly and that leads to his ultimate demise as um the skull crawler sense the the flash and the heat of his camera and then and, jo- and uh, john goodman adds the list of monster verse characters who are a high profile actor who arguably gets offed unceremoniously. Yes. Uh, we, it's, have, it... we have Brian Cranston getting killed by the Mutos. Uh, John Goodman getting killed by the Skullcrawler. Sally Hawkins getting killed by Ghidorah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lance Reddick getting killed by post-production. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, so anyway, I do weekends, and uh, 
I'll see you guys next episode. Um, yeah, it's 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 a little bit funny, but it's also it's supposed to be like, hey, like they're vicious and you know they're just gonna kill you out of nowhere type of thing. And it's it's that kind of movie thing where it's like, hey, like even the big actor can be killed. Um, you know that sort of thing. Which I, I think mean, what's weird about that is like it seemed very late to make that point. Yeah, I don't. Actually, this is one of those things where it was just kind of like, oh. All right, I guess, I guess we're killing off John Goodman. Right. But yeah. Because like when you watch the movie, it's like I, I can't say like I was all that invested. And it's and it's. I mean, though. at the most, you would be like, oh, he gets to see Kong at the end, and like I think like he's a character that can't like he's a character that can't survive. So you're either going to like have him be like, and I, I think the whole idea though is that like it's not like as if he's going to be killed by Kong's hand. Like he has to be killed by a skull crawler because that's his whole sort of like. You know he he got himself he got everybody into this mess type of deal. So I think it's like kind of a hard place. I mean, I guess he could have been killed in the final bit, but then it would also have to have his character. I, like, I I think it's a little bit of Bo Roberts having fun. Yeah, I think like, yeah. for sure. And I also think it's again, it's like you're not really gonna do much with his character throughout the rest of the film, honestly. Yeah. At, from that point, uh, so then we get the big actual f- escape sequence where the skull crawlers are trying to eat all the rest of the crew and everybody's trying to escape. I'm just going to talk at one point, uh, you know, the young guy, the, I forget his name, but the, the young soldier gets knocked away. A bunch of toxic gas cans get exploded. A bunch of green mist everywhere. John C. Riley takes the samurai sword and he speaks in Japanese. He's like death before honor. They're all running away. And then we get to, I mean, like, let's just, don't bury the lead. It, it's, this is what you want to get to. Tom Hiddleston runs through, yells at John C. Riley, sword. John C. Riley throws him the sword. He picks up a gas mask, puts it on, and then we just get this shot of Tom Hiddleston in a gas mask, surrounded by this very dark, very thick green mist, green fog, slicing through these bat creatures that are also there. It is the most unnecessary, badass, cool moment that also is completely unnecessary, badass, cool moment. It's the epitome of, like, cool for the absolute sake of cool in a movie. And just like with the weird sun stuff, I'm not going to have it any other way. I genuinely think, and I know I've said this, I'm a broken record on this, but when we saw this in the theater... I think you and I viscerally had the same reaction to this scene. Yeah. Like you and I were just immediately on board where we're just like, and I think it like really at the end of the day, like I think it was like that one moment where you and I knew that, okay, this movie is amazing and we're like, we get it now and this is it. Yes. And and I think that was the moment. Like we we both just like we like what what what's the thing in uh in, in Pacific Rim when they we 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 became drift compatible in that one moment. Yeah. When that happened, it, it it's really absurd. It, it it's so unnecessary. Jordan Vote Roberts knows it's unnecessary, mm-hmm. but he wanted to do it. It was a piece of concept art that he sold. Um as as his pitch to tom hiddleston to do the film and he's and i think he has a story about how he says like some random kid during a screening thought it was the best part of the movie and that justified it for him and quite frankly 
right on. Yeah, for sure. No, no, no doubt here, baby. No doubt. Especially here. that, like that slow, like the slight, like yeah, the sli- like, the the head on slice where you just see the slow motion, and then it's just the absurd. gas mask in your face. It's so crazy. Here's the thing, and I, I'll say this: I, I'm going to be bold, and I had this thought, and I want you to respond to it. And I kind of have this thought about a lot of these MonsterVerse movies, but when it comes to just kind of like off kilter directorial choices like that, which it is, it's like one of those things. I'm like, you know what? If Jordan Vote Roberts made all of these choices, but it wasn't a blockbuster with CGI set pieces, we would all be like, oh my God, what a director making like his great weird choices. We mm-hmm. love it. But because it's like, oh, it's got like, it's got like a giant monster in it and you're just supposed to like have fun watching them fight each other. No, it's like, boo. No, it's like, it's like, this is like, these are weird yeah. fucking choices that I think he would even argue he had to fight for. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, for some reason, I just thought about uh, my response to that. It's almost, it's like when, like when Richard Kelly makes Donnie Darko is this kind of low key, like indie, like weird thing with like, you know, bunnies and time travel and shit. It's great when he like gets all the biggest actors in the world to do his weirdo political pseudo Southland tales, all of a sudden everybody's like, what the fuck is this? Well, you yeah, saw, well, da- you saw Donnie Darko. <laughs> like you, this isn't a surprise. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a little different. Not- no, 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 no. I, 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 I don't think it's different at all. I think it's just like, you know, it's still directors making, I think it's just the point that like, you know, it's, you know, there's just kind of like this arbitrary, like, you know, people like, you know, there are tours when they've, doing the thing that they've decided that they like being auteurs about. Yeah. But like, I, I've been one of the people where I said like, and even as an MCU fan, I think that the legendary movies are some of the most auteur blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely agree. Um, Especially because each one, I think that's the thing is that you have four different films with four different directors and each one feels very different from the other. Yeah. I think, yeah. and that's very and I mean, much. And the, and the only exception I would probably give is maybe like the la- like Godzilla versus Kong, but that's only because I think that there was a few reactionary things behind the scenes. But mm-hmm. I mean, the f- yeah, I, I completely agree with you. But I mean, like we know that if the dark universe had been able to go on, that really would have been the, <laughs> the, the true auteur der- driven. Um, so basically they escape. We find out that, you know, Tony Tony Kebbell's skull gets choked up by a skull crawler and Sam Jackson is still obsessed with killing Kong so his mission continues um eventually you know uh the plan is that they they find their their stuff they find all the napalm they find all the stuff they're going to basically set the water on fire and you know blow up Kong and burn him down you know, Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston want no part of this and decide eventually to, to go save Kong. Um, John C. Riley as well. And uh, that, that, that kind of final confrontation at night between Packard and everybody is also a really good scene. Um, well, also there's just some gangbusters of some money shots in there too. Like, the, mm-hmm. I mean, the, my favorite shot of the entire film is when the napalm, and all the explosions are happening. And then once it gets to the horizon on the tree line, then you see Kong, like it gets highlighted. That's my favorite. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that that's a, that, yeah, that's a, that's a decent uh, confrontation. And 
you know, and then ultimately, like, the lesson is, is, like, you know, who's going, you know, it's kind of like a general who's going to do the right thing and who's going to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And they do a good job of, like, I mean, I, I, I was a little, I was, I, I'm repeating it, but I'm really impressed by that you know that he's doing the wrong thing, but there are some villain trappings and cliches that they had avoided yeah. up until that point. And they get you also invested in the rest of these army guys that you can even tell. I mean, what we kind of didn't talk about is throughout all these other scenes, like the, all these other guys are kind of having doubts. At right. This there's, point. there's like, a lot of debate among them where it's like, you know, and it's, you know, and like we have to, like, uh, uh, we have the one scene too earlier where like, uh, Shea Wingham is talking about how he carries the, um, the one Vietnam farmer's gun because it reminds them that like sometimes we just make enemies out of people that are not our enemies. But then he also has a great line where it's like, what happens when they attack you? I still got his gun. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. what happens when they show up at your front door? Still got his gun. Let's see if that works out for you. But we also have like, again, there's that stuff where like there's debate among them. And at the end, again, you know, the young guy turns on him, you know, John C. Riley's like, I know you outrank me, but like, listen, like I'm not, I'm not letting you do this. Uh, we get a nice bitch please from uh some Jackson in the scene. Yeah, we do. We yeah. I feel like I feel like Jackson has to have at least one right. Jackson right. moment in Right. Well, and, and, you know, uh yeah. he he had the hold on to your butts earlier as well. Yeah. Uh in the movie. Which apparently Jordan Vorovis was very uh nervous about. Mm-hmm. And he even considered taking it out. But I think what he learned is like I think Jackson is like a very good sport yeah. about stuff like that. I don't think he takes stuff like that very precious. So and then we have also have the final confrontation of Jackson and Kong with the fire in between them and everything like that, which is a nice parallel to the beginning of the movie when Kong same thing when Jackson kind of gets his first obsession with Kong when he sees him through the fire. Uh, they have some good stare offs in this movie. And you know, and one of the things I like about it, and this is kind of like a bigger monster verse theme, is that there is a bit of like a nihilistic tendency in all of these films. Like there is a the futility of man mm-hmm. in all these things. So what's interesting is like, yeah, it is kind of like it the film does embrace things like, yeah, Jackson just gets killed right there. Shane William gets killed, and all these other characters just John Ortiz just gets killed earlier. Yeah. But, but and I think the other thing, though, is I think I remember I actually did go back and look at our tweets from the live tweeting. I went all the way back through our feed. And one of the things you also did mention, though, is that while they do have this nihilistic thing, this is also a scene where they do bring down Kong. Like they do light the fire and they do kind of actually injure him to to a point where they could, you know, kill him. And it's like, yes, there is this sort of nihilistic, fatalistic thing. But man is still dangerous and man can still fight oh back. yeah they can they can still like i mean like and then that's where and then that leads I, right into king, like king of the monsters as well yeah like it, they they it's still they still have a say in how all of this plays out yeah um but the other thing i was going to say is like despite all of that like the real lesson of the film and this is kind of like the nuance of stories especially of this scope and of blockbusters that sometimes you know we want to engage and sometimes we don't unfortunately want to engage in but like the real lesson is like not that samuel jackson gets unceremoniously killed it's the fact that he was going to be the one guy to stay there to to blow up kong that's like 
and that's like what his lesson was like he never learns his lesson mm -hmm. and everybody else kind of learns his lesson and like going forward like does Shay wing him like you know does he kind of get hilariously a, a futile uh a futile uh sacrifice play yeah but i think the point is is that he was going to do that like, yeah I, I that's how i look at stories like this personally yeah yeah and then just like again like again you know the the difference between like again what we can control and you know what also these can monsters... i can i mention the really goofy when the big mama skull crawler shows up mm -hmm. then it's like this geyser but then it just drops down from the sky so the implication of it is that it just popped up from the ground yeah <laughs> into the sky right because i was gonna say so um we get to, like to the ending of this movie oh do we have to retell our yes. story well was, i was my, okay. my my thing was gonna say is okay. like they're like they, they they're like okay well we have to get to the boat now because sam jackson's dead okay everybody's on board with escaping this island we only have a few more hours you know we only have a, a short amount of time to get to the north side of the island so they run to the boat and according to the first time we saw this movie that's where the movie ends um so do you want to tell it or should I? No, I mean, like, it was just so, like, for, again, if you've seen the movie, it was literally, like, that scene where the third act begins. Like, they're just, like, the the mama scroll crawler comes, tackles Kong, we got to get out of here, turns to day, power goes out in our theater. Like, yeah. it was, like, the big, like, you could, especially for us, we could not be more geared up for where this movie was going to go. Yeah. And, and it was also in. the lead up to that because it was like the premiere and we had like, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you had to like print out tickets and they're like oversold everything, which like it's free, but it's like they print out, you know, so many more so that they can guarantee a fill up. So then we were in line and there was arguments and people fighting. And it's like, do we want to stay? Do we want to go see another movie? Finally, they're like, we're going to open up a second theater. Everybody's like, okay, like let's calm down. And then as soon as that, like, I remember as soon as that uh, power outage happened and the, the film just cut, I was like, I just really hope that everybody's calmed down from before because otherwise there's going to be some issues here. Uh, eventually they couldn't get the film restarted. So we, yeah. we, we had to wait a whole week to find out what actually happens at the end of this movie. But we ended up getting free tickets, and then we went to go see it at the in in the Chinese theater proper in, in and IMAX. So yeah, that was, and it was, that was, that was it was a very good IMAX screening. But yeah, so we did eventually get to see the end of this movie where they're on the boat. Yes, there's a big sacrifice play that doesn't actually turn into a sacrifice play. We get a big fight between the kind of injured Kong and the and the Mama Skull Crawler. Um, you know, everybody kind of gets involved. You know, Brie Larson and gets grabbed by Kong at one point as he's trying to help out, and just a, it's just a nice final battle between well, just, our, our, yeah, our monsters. Over, overall, thinking of the final battle up until this point, even as a fan of the other movies, I I considered this to be the the best battle. Now, one of the reasons I think I give a little bit now credit to like Godzilla versus Kong is because you know it's just it just comes through on those battles so much. But it's it's one hell of a for for something that Joan Roberts had to be talked into doing. Mm -hmm. He really because he would say like even though he it wasn't like okay well it was out of his hands. He's like okay well the vote's in that we have to do a monster battle, so we're gonna do some crazy stuff. And and I have to say like not only is it really good and it's and it and it looks very good, but 
there's just some fun little Easter eggs in it. Like they are, they managed to put in the Kong and chains thing, but in like a fun way and like him, you, and then there was like, you know, him being Kong and like using the tree as like a bat and like stripping the tree down. And, and then of course the ripping out the guts, like, mm-hmm. ugh, like it, it's just, it, yeah, it's the, a the, knockout of a sequence. Yeah, it's a whole great the, the 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 tree thing is great. Like that's another moment where you're like that's a moment in a the theater where you're like, oh hell yes. When he like you see him with the bat, like with the tree trunk bat, you're like, that that's a moment. That's a scene. That's a that's a Kong moment. And it kind of showcases like again what makes this Kong such a fun version of Kong. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think that the because and then they they tie it into the story of this film is like this is a creature who is like you know it's an ape but he's been like surviving on this island like right. so essentially it's a guy who's been surviving on this island. So. And and it's also again it's like he has been surviving by being in many ways like the best fighter and the strongest fighter and someone who you know, we we you, there's that part of the movie where it's like we we realize that like yes, this is kind of like the the last of his kind, the younger Kong. His parents were were killed by these skull crawler creatures, and so it's up to Kong to survive and continually beat these creatures before they get to him too. And I think when you talk about a film that showcases why Kong is his own has his own claim to the King of the Monsters crown in many ways. And kind of, to an extent, like the the American crown of King. That's a showcase for why Kong is the ultimate American movie monster. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes this Kong movie one of the best, and what makes this but, version of Kong one of the best. But also, strangely, through a Toho lens. Kind yes. Of, like when you think about it, like mm-hmm. it's, it's oh, it's very yeah. much. It's more so on the side of kind of the yeah, like the Toho and and sort of stuff we see in those Toho King Kong movies like than it, what it, we've it's, what we've seen in in the you know regular King Kong movies. Yeah, definitely, and and again, like you know, with Jordan Vogt Roberts being like an anime and Gundam and Evangelion fan, it makes com- it makes complete sense. Um, yeah, I mean, all, all this stuff was um, really good. Fun fact: the bit where um, Brie Larson shoots out one of the eyes of the skull crawlers with a flare—that mm-hmm. was Jordan Vogt Roberts' way of of getting rid of the eyes on the creatures because his only thing is like he wanted the skull crawlers not to have eyes and he was outvoted on that. Mm-hmm. So then he added a bit where they get their eyes shot out. <laughs> that's that's fun. Um that's a fun fact. That is a fun fact. Yeah. Um and then uh, one of the other things is that overall like one of the things I did find very striking when looking at all these Kong movies and I think what really works about Skull Island and I think what makes Skull Island so fun is like again because you don't have the pressure of telling the King Kong story, you don't have to take Kong off the island. And I think the fact that it is basically, it is basically again like kind of a, in some ways, very much related to like the Jules Verne of like Journey to the Center of the Earth, or you know, like the the Land Lost to Time, or Twenty Thousand Leagues, or whatever. It's like about escaping this crazy world. 
And the fact that you just have so much of the movie on Skull Island and the best version of Skull Island just makes this almost an infinitely more interesting movie. Because other than, like, the only other movie where there's no taking something off of an island or Kong in some other environment is, is Son of Kong. And that's, you know, that's only, like, the very end of the movie, as we've talked about. Where, like, every other movie, you have to have this moment where, like, oh, it's Kong rampaging through New York City or he's rampaging through you know, Georgia or, you know, yada, yada, yada. He's like on the petroleum thing, whatever. So the fact that it's just like you have this whole movie that's just so focused on Skull Island allows you to really appreciate what Kong is so much more. And I think that that of all all else is like what makes this such a unique and fun and interesting part of the Kong franchise, especially seeing this after having seen so many films that have so many similar beats and have so many similar aesthetics and ideas about what Kong is. I just think it's just a brilliant stroke of genius to finally expand Kong out of that. I think it's just great. I I think for me in, in, you know, just kind of as my wrapping up about why I actually like this movie and 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 i'll be honest some of it could be it 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 is it does feel a little bit more in line with like kaiju and toho and and Mm -hmm. that's why probably i like it a little bit but but honestly the reason why i like it out of the kong stuff is because i just feel like it tells the story in a way that is the most interesting to me because it is still telling like this story about you know man coming to this place Place that it doesn't need to be and the results of that and how that fits into a certain time period um and i feel like sometimes when i watch the older movies um it, it's just kind of like um a very straightforward way of saying that like you know you kind of get it like you know they go to the island they're there for a while and then they bring it back and then the fact that it's in modern day is like it elicits all of that understanding of like oh like bringing animals out of their natural habitat i find this movie to be in the what some of the best versions of a fun blockbuster that you can have and by that i mean that it's first and foremost in your face just a fun romp of a film mm-hmm. where the characters sure they're archetypal and the story is more of like let's just get through the movie and that is really what the story is but the directing is more so about the craft of how how does that visually look how much fun do you have with it how visually and how visually creative is it how like what do the creatures and everything look like even if the characters are archetypal how like much star power brings them to life mm-hmm. and and i and i like all of that and so it is able to deliver all of that and then you peel back the surface and it still has all of this clever interweaving of like how does the story of man coming to an island fit into modern day history and it goes above and beyond by not just the universal lesson because the kong in the original movie is a universal lesson like we get it that could be anywhere it could be at any time you go one place, you bring it back. You're not supposed to do this. But how does this fit into a specific point in history? And therefore, that lesson becomes even more palpable. Like the fact that you integrate this into not only Vietnam, but the entire 70s as a period. It makes you just appreciate the story and the fun being told, but then also the time period. I'm a huge fan of the film. Um, 
I, I think it just works from top to bottom. Um, those few other nitpicks aside, yeah. Um, and um, it's just another home run for the MonsterVerse. And again, one of the reasons for the MonsterVerse for a completely different reason than the other MonsterVerse things, other than like the thematic through line we found. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a yeah, a a a a a plus. Yeah, I think it's it's one of my. I think it's my favorite MonsterVerse movie, just purely from I, watchability. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue. I, wouldn't I mean, argue I, I think that. I think it is a four. I, I really like all four. Um, it'd be hard to really actually rank them, but I think of all the movies, I always go by like ranking movies as like which one am I most likely to revisit, and which one am I most likely to kind of like watch again. And this one, I just there's such so much fun and so much cool stuff, and cool for the sake of cool, actual cool, everything about this movie just the way they use Kong and the way they use uh, the, you know, just the, the aesthetic and the characters in the world and the time period, as you said, you, you couldn't put it any better. Just, I love everything about this movie. And uh, I, I just really do enjoy this version of Kong, especially having seen the rest of the Kongs. And I can appreciate that classic Kong so much more now in many different ways. I love that original. I love that seventies Kong. I love elements of Jackson's Kong. I love elements of 30 the Kong, but I almost feel like this is my favorite whole Kong package. Now really having gone through this entire live action franchise. Um, and, and, and that's including the, the two Toho films as much as I enjoy those as well. Those are also very fun. I, I've said this about like all of the like well and maybe it's not completely deserving, but I, I've said this about all the MonsterVerse directors. But I like look at Vote Roberts' filmography, and I just think it's crazy that this was the last movie he directed. Like, I mean, he he now has movies on the books, and he and he has stayed busy. I mean, he's directed some TV, and I don't feel too bad for him because he's had plenty of fun doing like shorts and commercials and promotional materials for video games. And, and, and frankly, I think you gotta be happy for a director like that. Like he's like, who will wait for whatever big project he wants to do. And he's like, I'm going to go have fun with this video game stuff. It reminds me a lot about Haley Steinfeld's career where you're like, well, she's in true. She's in a Coen brothers movie where everybody agreed that she was the best part of. And then, well, she could do anything. So she's like, oh, I'm going to be go do my pop career and be in uh, Pitch Perfect. And then I'm going to come back and be in movies that everybody loves. So bottom line, I'm saying like, I do appreciate a person basically following their own path, even though I think that they, I think it's, I need, I, I should have more Joden Vort Roberts blockbusters or movies in my life by now is what I'm trying to say. Oh man, someday his Metal Gear Solid movie. <laughs> That's the elephant in the room. Will I saw your face? That's the one. Oh my god! His someday his Metal Gear Solid movie will get to the next part of the scripting phase. Uh, man, dude. I don't know. I mean, I guess like, can we briefly mention that? I mean, that's like some supposedly this movie that is happening is not happening is this kind of like it's like schrodinger's metal gear solid movie it's just it's like a it, it, it's it a develop doesn't exist it's a development hell movie that like is has a director that's so passionate about the material that he put a reference to that material in this movie the aforementioned gray fox it's something that he will not never stop talking about and well, you know my i think i told you my theory about it right 
I think uh, he wants to do it properly, and that's the reason it's not getting made fast. That would make the most sense. Yeah, that would a hundred percent knowing him and knowing what he loves, like, um, only because I guarantee, like, if you made a Metal Gear Solid movie with all the sensibilities of a Metal Gear Solid game, people are not gonna like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I, but I, I do know his most recent thing is like he is directing a Netflix Gundam mm-hmm. movie or series of yeah. movies or something yes. like that. Yeah, so I mean, he I'm did forward to that. He was in Death Stranding, so yes, there's that too. Um, like likeness only, though. Before we get to the aftermath, I do want to briefly mention just because we we briefly mentioned it before. I really do actually like this little kind of beginning of credits scene where John C. Riley gets to return home. Uh, I like the detail that his son is played by the same actor who played young John C. Riley at the beginning of the movie. I think that's really fun. Oh, but that, yeah, I like that. that, that is um, but I also think that it's just for a moment of just like watching sort of like a very silent moment of a reuniting of a family. It's very emotional. And I think it's just a testament to John C. Riley's like ability. Also, Another the last story about us watching the movie is that when we finally did see the movie proper, of course we're watching the credits as we always do because oh, yes, we're, yeah. we're we're good film fans. So we watch the credits. At the end of the credits, you see a little copyright like, "Hey, Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, and Ghidorah." Copyright Toho, and you're like, well, "Oh, I guess I know." If specifically, we're like, "Well, what could the post credit be?" And then we saw the copyright, which again is something that Jordan Vote Roberts actually does point out in the commentary is actually technically a spoiler yeah but then you know they're just i mean it's a basic post credit scene they're like it's like hey there's a debriefing hey you know remember monarch doesn't exist but all these other monsters do and kind of get the stuff where it's like all these monsters are appearing in in king of the monsters where- hey listen i i agree it is a very basic scene but it did get me pumped I'm it not did. Gonna lie. It did. Because then it ends with like the Godzilla roar, which we heard on chi- in the Chinese theater. Chef's kiss. Yeah, for sure. Also, Tom Hiddleston just, I like Tom Hiddleston complaining. He's just like, why are you keeping us here? I do think it's interesting that like, I mean, I'm sure there's in like, maybe it's in a novelization somewhere, but they, again, like this franchise did not really bring back any characters i mean they bring back randa's student guy as joe morton in the next movie yes like they they do bring him back yeah there's basically like it is interesting because it's kind of like you're only really connecting characters or like you got sarazawa and sally hawkins in two movies you've got the yeah the the student the the hollow earth theory guy comes back older it's joe morton and then you have kyle chandler briefly you know making his appearance in and and um uh 11 what's her whatever her name is millie bobby brown millie bobby brown thank you uh yes that was the most that was the most yeah that was the most they've ever really done uh other than sarazawa's big emotional moment at king of the monsters so it's just interesting and i think it helps the monsterverse in in certain ways to kind of stand out all right let's wrap this thing up yeah go ahead all right, so Kong Skull Island does eventually release on March 17th, 2017 uh, to a massive success uh, with a $566.7 million um, box office pull worldwide and, and well-reviewed uh, by, by most critics, very, uh, very well-reviewed. People really love the aesthetic. People like the different take on the Kong story. 
yeah, there was a complaint about the characters possibly being too many of them and also not having too much depth. But as we said, a lot of people just enjoy sort of the star power and just the charisma of the movie itself. And it's also been the one that I think has had the most retrospective love out of all of them. Yes, I, I think it's one that people really pick up on. I think especially now that the whole, you know, we kind of have kind of a somewhat complete story of just like these four films and finally got Kong, King Kong versus Godzilla. And I think that's also what did make people excited for Godzilla versus Kong at the end of the day is people really like this version of Kong. And we got to see, you know, bearded Kong and everything like that. Um and and this was a you know major turning point in the monsterverse as a cinematic universe because this was really what made it like a true cinematic universe and eventually the showdown between Kong and Godzilla was going to happen and it took a little bit took some delays took a pandemic but we finally got there and you can listen to that episode uh, from earlier this year our review of that and all of our other monsterverse movies um, as well as um, you know. Uh, there's also that anime series they announced, which is supposed to take place in the MonsterVerse uh, that has Skull Island involved. And if recent rumors are being believed that if there is any future for the MonsterVerse, it's likely through Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kong, uh, obviously, it's interesting because, again, it's like we talked about this a little bit last time where it's like that traditional King Kong imagery is still so associated with the 2005 version. And that version is still Kong to to a lot of people but this version of kong has really started to really make its own stake uh in sort of the wider king kong world and you can definitely see that with the reaction to kong versus uh, godzilla versus kong uh and sort of the love that this movie has really accumulated over the years and i think the the popularity of this film has only grown over the years and, and it is suffice to say that this is likely the most popular monsterverse films just from a casual audience perspective i agree completely agree and that about wraps up our king kong series of films i was so excited to um finally dive into this film but also just as surprisingly satisfied with diving into this entire franchise i i think honestly like i know that we are um looking into whatever the next uh series of films was which i'm equally excited for but i wonder if uh maybe a uh maybe a a a post-mortem is uh is due for the entire franchise as a whole we definitely might be able to do something to that extent uh so keep an eye out for that uh and as well just hinted so if you're wondering what's coming after kong uh, we don't have an exact announcement on that yet. Uh, the reason for that is that there is some sort of scheduling stuff that we just want to make sure we confirm uh, for next month and beyond. Uh, so we didn't want to kind of confirm and commit to something and then maybe do something else in, in August. So what we're going to do is our next major series will be a separate announcement through the podcast feed on our SoundCloud and through iTunes. That'll be coming sometime in the near future. Uh, Once Wheel and I make the final decision, we have a couple of good ideas. So keep your ears out for that. Uh, We'll have a short little announcement soon about what's coming next uh, in terms of our dual franchises. But next month in August, you can expect a Star Trek episode. We are going to be diving into our first new, uh, not new generation, next generation episode. um, A next generation movie where we finally meet 
Jean-Luc Picard, Data, Worf, and everybody else on the Enterprise D, Riker, uh, Gates McFadden, but that's the actress, and some other people. I'm sure I'll get into it. I'm not... We'll talk about the next the next generation, and then they finally get their movie in Star Trek Generations, which I'm excited to talk about. Looking forward to it. All righty. And with that, let's wrap up this uh, episode right here. Bonzillapod at gmail.com. Uh, Twitter.com slash Bonzilla007. That is the best way to reach us. Um, if for you have what you want to look us, us what us to look at next, please let us know. Uh, we'll definitely take in consideration for future uh, considerations. Uh, Facebook.com slash Bonzilla 7 still exists as well. And uh, SoundCloud.com slash Bonzilla 7 Like and subscribe iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you again for taking us on a journey. I had a lot of fun talking to Kong. I'm going to have a lot of fun with whatever comes next. Looking forward to it. All right, guys. Take care. See you next time. Keep your eyes open. Up in the trees, too. Why? Ants. Big ones. There's one. Sounds like a bird, but it's a fucking ant. <laughs>